everyone, welcome to Ongoing Comic Book Discussion Podcast. I'm your horror host, Tess Janos, and today is day 16 of 31 Days of Horror. You can follow this enchantingly eerie escapade of horror comics on Instagram at OCD Podcast, Facebook at Facebook.com slash OCD Podcast, Twitter at Ongoing Pod, and Patreon at Patreon.com slash OCD Podcast. We are 15 days from Halloween and 13 days from our second Halloween giveaway. On Thursday, October 29th, we will be giving away a very witchy package that includes a Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Volume 1 comic, a Sabrina and Salem Funko from the Netflix series, and OCD stickers. To enter, head on over to your social media of preference, follow Ongoing Comic Book Discussion Podcast, and share your favorite OCD poor post thus far. Tag OCD in your post along with a hashtag 31 Days of Comic and you will be entered into the raffle. That's one entry per person, and it's going to be a devilishly good time. Now to introduce today's co-host. Uh, she is the Duchess of Horror herself. It's Chels from the Ready to Retro podcast. What's up, Chels? Hey, how's it going? Okay. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, this is awesome. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. I'm here a lot, and I like it. I like being here. I love having you here, girl. Uh, and yeah. joining us today is a very special guest. He is the writer of the comic that got me into comics. True story. He has worked in independent film as a writer, editor, producer, and actor. In 2014, he jumped into the wild world of comic books and has written several fantastic adventures with Dynamite Comics. To name a few, he's written Legendary Vampirella, Twilight Zone, The Show, Doc Savage, Ring of Fire, Betty Page, and the first comics I ever read, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Shape of Elvira. I am so honored he is with us here today. He is David Avaloni. Hey there, David. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is very nice. Oh, so happy to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> we met at we met at uh, the Perky Nerd in we person. We did. There was a signing for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and I was like, I gotta go. I gotta go. Oh man, very nice. <laughs> yeah, she she told me you guys had talked about the first volume at uh, the book club. Yeah. And I was like, man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and heard that because uh, <laughs> that's always that kind of reader feedback is always really interesting. Well, it's a great comic and I'm not just saying that. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. El- um, I was going to say Elvira and I. Chelsea and I are huge <laughs> Elvira fans anyway. And the fact that she yeah. had a comic, we were like, oh, we're, we're so there. <laughs> that's how we bonded. <laughs> yes. It's over Elvira. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Uh, so, David, uh, I know this is a loaded question, but you're on a horror comic podcast right now. Um, yes. What does Halloween mean to you? Oh, man. Uh, what does Halloween mean to me? I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1965, so, like, Halloween is a very different experience for my sure. generation. First of all, it was not a thing adults did <laughs> at all. I think it's my generation. It's I think it's Generation X that went... I don't want to stop wearing costumes at, you know, I don't want, I, I want to keep having Halloween, but like adult Halloween parties, I think start with generation X boomers did not do it. It was, <laughs> it was totally a thing for the kids. Um, and I had Halloween parties when I was a kid and there's, you know, the iconic, uh, I'm that generation where like I saw the Charlie Brown Halloween. It's the great pumpkin Halloween special. Oh yeah. Like, I saw that when it was new. I saw that the first time it ran <laughs> yeah. on television. So that's a kind of a, and I was a huge like history nut. I still am. So Snoopy fighting the Red Baron in World War One was like totally appealing to me. 
Nice. I think personality-wise, I'm somewhere between Snoopy and Linus. <laughs> nice. Um, kind of the weirdo dreamer and the, you know, thoughtful weirdo. It's two different kinds of weirdo. Sure, and, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and I've continued to, you know, go to Halloween pop costumes last year. we I don't often do horror, specifically horror costumes, mm-hmm. uh, but last year... Uh, it was a little too perfect for me and my wife. We did uh, Laszlo and Nadja from What oh, We Do in the Dark. Oh, that's amazing. You know, not <laughs> just because I have a mustache, but also I love the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and literally like eight months before Halloween, uh, we have a friend who uh, is a great costume designer, great costumer, great uh, burlesque star, as my wife was also a burlesque star for a while. That's awesome. And uh, she was having a like a yard sale of old costume stuff. And there was this great uh, European cut great coat with all these little folds and capes and whatever. And even eight months before, I'm never like this, but eight months before Halloween, I picked it up, showed it to my wife, and I said, this would be pretty good for Laszlo. And she's like, oh my God, you have to get it. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, we did. That. And Matt, I'm a huge Matt Berry fan beyond that show. Oh my gosh. So he is just one of the Love funniest, funniest human Toast of London is one of my favorite things ever. That's a fun uh, show. Yeah. Uh, and I've slowly found all of his stuff on streaming services, which I hadn't been familiar with. Uh, speaking of horror, like Garth Marenghi's Dark Places. Oh, my gosh. That is, is the best. It's a masterpiece. And again, it's Hilarious. certainly... I do wonder sometimes... Uh, it's fascinating to me when a satire of a spe- really specific thing mm-hmm. can be super successful... And beloved by people who have no idea what the original thing was. Right. You know, I do. I work with uh, Kevin Eastman, who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Amazing. He's my my partner on a. Uh, and I remember I read the first issue of that in 1984. And it's that same circumstance where I said, "Well, this is really fun, but it's a really specific satire of Frank Miller's Japan." modern urban ninja obsession and Chris Claremont's writing on the X-Men and the New Mutants. <laughs> and and how could any how could something that targeted be universally interesting to people? But mm-hmm. what I forgot was cute animals fighting crime. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you don't know it's Frank Miller. Right. It yeah. means nothing. <laughs> uh, and I also love the origin story because it's, you know, Kevin co-created it and it's they both loved all of the things him and his partner Peter Laird but literally Kevin drew the first Ninja Turtle and wrote Ninja Turtle on it Mm -hmm. which is the Frank Miller part Mm -hmm. and then his partner Peter Laird wrote Teenage Mutant on top of it (laughs) which is the Chris Claremont part which is the X-Men part and it's just so it's so rare in a creation like that that you can really draw a clear line you know, like I said, it's not like Kevin didn't know the X-Men and it's not like Peter didn't know Daredevil and, you know, all the stuff that Frank was doing. But it's so funny when it's like t- mutant, you know, Ninja Turtle, teenage mutant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway, it's a digression. But uh, yeah, Halloween was always an excuse to uh, dress up. And I've always liked dressing up. Uh, and oh, I mean, I'm still... I still dress up. I still, 
uh, I, I absolutely believe in clothing as costume. Definitely. Uh, and at a certain age, I decided what my costume was at a pretty young age, actually. And I remember a few years ago, I was packing for Comic-Con for San Diego. Mm-hmm. And I reached into a, you know, uh, a, a drawer to get out shirts or whatever and folded up off to the left was a gold Starfleet tunic with captain's <laughs> bars on it. Amazing. And I just went, you know, there was a time I never would have left that home mm-hmm. from going to San Diego. But mm-hmm. like my costume as David Avalone, comic book artist, is, uh, <laughs> comic book writer, excuse me, not an artist, uh, is perfectly acceptable to me now. And I'm comfortable in it and I'm happy about it. And I don't actually want to not wear that costume. Yeah. Uh, but one more funny, ridiculous thing Please. about cos- <laughs> costumes and comic book conventions. Yeah. So the, I grew the mustache about five years ago for a uh, Halloween costume. Mm-hmm. And my wife secretly loves mustaches. <laughs> uh, she is maybe the only woman in the world with a Barney Miller fetish. Uh, and I always say, you know, like, good for me. Like, if yeah. she had an Aquaman fetish, yeah. I, cannot pull it, right. I cannot pull that off. But aging New York Jewish homicide detective, that <laughs> is a go. love. got that. I got that nailed. Yeah. But the first time I had a picture taken of me in a at a comic book convention with the mustache, I was giving some on-camera interview, and someone took a picture of me being interviewed. So there's a camera, cameraman, and I was in a three-piece gray suit, you know, the glasses, the mustache, the hair going silver. Mm-hmm. And I put it up on Instagram, <laughs> and a friend of mine commented, Commissioner Gordon, do you have a statement about the Batman? <laughs> I thought that was the funniest goddamn thing I had ever seen in my life. So now I just call it, you know, low effort Jim Gordon cosplay. Definitely. And, you know, I'm, I'm cool. You know, when That's people ridiculous. ask, what are you dressed in? I'm, Commissioner Gordon, obviously. I mean, look, yeah. obviously. Easy. I mean, it's obviously the Gary Oldman version, right. not the cartoon vision with the very, right. with, the, with the mustache kinda, wax. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but I still think I, it's something you can age into very well as well. You know, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to be able to look like Jim Gordon for the next 30 years. Totally. Just various. Oh, you're Dark Knight Returns, Jim Gordon. Yes. 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 I, That's I, exactly. I, I am 75 year old Jim Gordon now, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Jim Gordon, the writer. Why not? Who knows? Maybe he retired sure. after his Batman escapades. Yeah, he did. He did the he did the what he did the Watson thing and wrote about Batman. Yes, novels, many yeah. novels. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you do you ever want to write a Batman comic one day? Is that like on your list? Of you things? know, I I I joke about that. I did a panel at San Diego last year about Zorro. Okay. You know the yeah the, mm-hmm. the Zorro character. And I spent a good fifteen, I spent a good fifteen minutes making fun of Batman. Uh, <laughs> Why not? Mostly because I like Batman, and I think there's good Batman stories to be written. But sure. I'm not, unlike a lot of people who get into this business, I am not particularly drawn to characters who have had twenty thousand stories written about them sure. and fifty mm-hmm. years of continuity, and not for well, wait, in Batman, ninety years of continuity, and not for nothing have corporate overlords who will say <laughs> Batman can't wear a tan suit what are you what are you talking about that's crazy uh, so that's a lot of work yeah. um, uh, and you know there's a there's an arc of that character mm-hmm. uh, you could probably go back further but the furthest back version I can think of is uh, the books are written in the 19th century and they're about the 
18th century mm. uh, called the Scarlet Pimpernel, mm, yeah. who is a, a rich guy who dresses up like a who who pretends to be a fop and okay. a, a kind of a a useless goofball, mm-hmm. but at night he dresses up and uh, helps French noble people get out of France so they don't get ex- executed during the Reign of Terror. Nice. Uh, and he confounds the authorities and they can never catch him. And then you've got Zorro, right. who's the Scarlet Pimpernel relocated to Southern California at the turn of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the stories are from like 1905, 1910, or right. no, 1919, I think is the first Zorro. Uh, and then you've got the shadow. The shadow is Zorro transplanted to New York City in the 20th century. Okay. And the basic, the basic idea is the guy who's living in a lawless time who uses the tools of criminality to fight criminals. Okay. Who, right. Who, he's not Superman or Captain America out there, you know, hands on hips shining in the, in the light. He's like, no, you fight gangsters by shooting them in dark alleys. alleys. That's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the shadow. And uh, I wrote a sh- the Twilight Zone. The Shadow was an a- opportunity to write the Shadow. Nice. I did a Zorro uh, miniseries, which was Zorro fighting zombies. It was a- one of my few horror things. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and it was a lot of it's a it's called Zorro Swords of Hell. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> and it's basically it's a sequel to the the Zorro origin story that everybody knows is he comes back from Spain, and his father had been mayor of the town. And the town's taken over by a corrupt new mayor who's exploiting the peasants and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the Joker's in charge of Gotham City. And Zorro destroys him. Uh, you know, and again, Zorro immediately, when he meets the new mayor, he immediately starts acting like a worthless playboy <laughs> so that he's not suspected of, oh, God, this guy's totally going to pull a Hamlet and revenge his dad. Yeah. Uh, and then he puts on a black outfit and goes out at night and kills Spanish soldiers yeah. and defeats the mayor. And the, what I came up with was uh, that story ends with Zorro, or I should say Don Diego de la Vega, exiling the mayor back to Spain. Mm-hmm. And my wow. story was on the way to the on the way to San Pedro, on the way to the ship, he runs into a shape shifting. Uh, which what would be called a bruja or a a brujo excuse me male Mm -hmm. uh in the form of a jaguar who says if you lift this curse on my people i will give you an army to defeat zorro with and the army is an army of undead conquistadores Awesome. So, That's awesome. So you, you know that that cool silver armor that the yeah. conquistadors have. Right. Oh, yeah. Imagine ring wraiths, but with that yeah. look. Amazing. Uh, so Zorro has to fight an army of them, and of course, you know when you're writing a character like uh, whose thing is well, what does he do? Well, he he has sword and he stabs people. That's what he's good at. Right. If you want to write an interesting story about a character like that. It's like, okay, what problem can't be solved by stabbing things? <laughs> you know, yeah. what's that's the challenge, you know. Yeah. Superman can punch the sun. What? How do you come up with a... What can't Superman punch into the sun? Right. Um, so uh, he has to go to his uh, grandmother, who's a full-blood uh, Tongva Indian, who understands the, you know, the magic that has been used to raise this army of the undead. And she tells him he has to literally go into hell and defeat the the the, the jaguar brujo in hell to 
send the zombies back. It's a wild story. Yeah. I'm incredibly proud of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it does sound really great. <laughs> the, co- the collection and the artist, this uh, great artist named uh, Roy Martinez, Roy Allen Martinez did it. And it's, it's. I can say this because I, I had nothing to do with it. It's all his work. It's beautiful. It's really gorgeous. There was, he's, it's the only time I've ever been able to pick out an artist's nationality because of his art style. Okay. Okay. In comic book history in the late 60s, I think early 70s, there was this discovery of a school of Filipino artists mm-hmm. who did this very extremely detailed over-rendered horror mm-hmm. uh, horror art. And Alfredo Alcala, Nestor Redondo, those are the those are the big names from that moment. And when I saw the first page, I was like, "Is this guy in the Philippines? Because man, does this look like Alfredo Alcala and Nestor Redondo and all of that great uh, Filipino 1970s horror art?" And I Whoa. looked him up on face. I looked him up on Facebook, and it was like Manila. I was like, "Well, wow. there it is." Okay. Uh, but yeah, and anyway, all that to say, it's a it's a beautiful looking book, and I. Almost no one read it. The company's very small, and they have okay. sort of path- pathetic uh, PR department and don't really advertise. So, well, I'm gonna read it because <laughs> yeah, it sounds. I, awesome. I, I look for this I, now. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll love it. But taking it all the way around to what we've started talking about, <laughs> what, what's great about Zorro? Yeah, is he has joy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Zorro fights for the oppressed in a funny costume at night and he terrifies the Spanish army and all of that but he does it with a smile and he laughs yeah. and it's yes. it's a joyful thing it's not I have no mommy and daddy I'm going to kill people you know it's, <laughs> it's not uh, Batman especially when he's written badly is just this ball of yeah. <laughs> emo neurosis which isn't really appropriate in a man who might be 35 40 years old right definitely needs to see like a therapist probably and look i i I, I lost both my parents about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and i'm not over it i would never say i'm over it but it's not it doesn't literally consume every minute of my waking life and it's not uh you know someone made a great point that batman dark knight returns influenced how batman's been written and drawn mm-hmm. since the 80s but dark knight returns was a story about batman at the end of his life and at the end of his career mm-hmm. and it's not about 35 year old batman <laughs> and you should not write 35 year old batman as this impossibly embittered enraged dude yeah it's also it's also an apocalyptic story set it kind of set at the end of the world Right. And again, that affects how Batman behaves in a way that he should not be behaving. And I'm not saying bring back Adam West, but <laughs> you know, the guy can the guy can smile every now and again. Yeah. You know, the guy can the the guy the, taking some pleasure in what he does. And on the other side of things, the shadow is borderline a sadist. He enjoys oh. it maybe a little <laughs> Too, too much. much. <laughs> uh, there was a great Batman the Shadow crossover between Dynamite and DC that uh, they did a couple of years ago. And uh, it was uneven, but it had one moment in it where it's like, if I had come up with this, this would have been my whole reason for doing the series. Batman is captured and surrounded by the Joker and his minions. Mm-hmm. 
the shadow famously terrifies his enemies by laughing in the dark. You hear oh. the shadows laugh and you're like, uh-oh. Right. I'm, I'm in enormous trouble. There's mm -hmm. a man in the dark with guns who's going to kill me, ruin my life, whatever. Yeah. And so the Joker has the Batman captured and he and his minions all start laughing and their laughter dies down and then there's a panel where they're all looking around going who's who's still laughing <laughs> and it's the, and it's the shadows laugh pierce and i was like man i'm i'm rarely jealous of stuff other people write but i was like oh i wish i had thought of the joker you know the shadow is the good guy version of the joker who terrifies people with his creepy 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 laugh i love that concept <laughs> though I, I, that is yeah. cool that's pretty dang cool i didn't realize yeah. that zorro oh batman is an inspiration of shadow which i knew but i didn't know no, that other way around oh. shadow and in, shadow influences the batman oh, i'm sorry oh i'm sorry and that's yeah, and that's even closer like uh, zorro's 1919 the shadow is like 1930 334 and batman is like three years later oh, <laughs> well i know not, in in some not, versions uh batman is like seeing zorro at the movie theater with his parents yep before oh, they're murdered my God. so i yeah. think that's so I, I think part that's of that night that's a 1970s thing i can't remember if it's a, if you first see it in a comic by it's either denny o'neill or Steve Englehart, I want to say, uh, writing really good Batman stuff in the 70s, where the movie that they're coming out of is, the, is, is Zorro. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Batman is sort of getting the idea. And also, there was a brief period in the 70s where DC Comics owned all the 1930s adventure pulp characters, which okay. The Shadow is part of that. Mm -hmm. And they did an episode, they did an issue where he meets The Shadow as an old man, and he says, I was always inspired by you. But the, I didn't like the guns, the guns. And they had a flashback scene where Bruce Wayne and and uh, Thomas Wayne are making a deposit in a bank mm -hmm. in the 30s. And bank robbers come in with Tommy guns and there's this laugh and the bank robbers all get blasted to pieces before they know what's <laughs> happening. And little Batman looks up and sees the shadow standing over him in his black Oh, in his man. black cape with the hat down over his eyes and the smoking pistols and it's like jesus they're terrifying <laughs> uh and that whole idea of uh the batman as a uh uh Dar darwin cook in new frontier did a great piece where i've never seen anybody explain robin so well where batman is rescuing a kid who's been kidnapped by cultists and he unties the kid, and the kid takes one look at him and starts screaming his head off. And a police detective has to come and take the kid away from Batman. And the next time Superman sees him, Robin is, like, doing headstands in the background. He says, I see you got a new partner. He said, I got into this to terrify criminals, not little, not little children. <sighs> and the idea that Robin is the public relations guy for Batman. The, the, the Robin, when you look at Batman with Robin, you go, oh, well, he can't. He's not a monster. He's got this cute little kid with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he still gets to be terrifying. But you send Robin to untie the 10-year-old. Not okay. the guy right. Not the guy dressed in the horrifying <laughs> bat costume. Don't fall for <laughs> you know? it. Yes. Yeah. No, oh I thought I just, Darwin was a... We lost him a few years ago. He's an incredible writer, incredible artist. I recommend... Couldn't recommend more highly looking up everything he ever did. And New Frontier is about the transition between the golden age and silver age in dc comics Ooh, nice. about 
the characters as they were created in the 30s and 40s and the characters it's what they became in the 60s and it's very cinematic and it's gorgeous and i like i said couldn't might be my favorite superhero comic ever amazing thank you for that history i learned yeah that's so cool (laughs) (laughs) thanks that's i mean it's part of my mission there's nothing wrong with enjoying this stuff and having no idea where it came from and what it does but uh i think it's richer if you see it as part of this tradition sure honestly you can stretch superman's tradition back to moses and gilgamesh like you know we've been telling these kind of stories since the dawn of man they have always had a purpose uh and it's a and it's a useful one i always say about genre that you know you want to write a serious dramatic story about someone about let's say a man struggling with his demons that's fine and you can write that and it's a guy staring off into space and drinking in a bar and doing whatever and arguing with people but in genre they can be actual demons and what's the thing about how human minds work symbolically and metaphorically the demons thing with the real demons can feel more like the experience you had than the guy sitting in a bar drunk and sad okay you know what i mean like the 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 reason people enjoy science fiction and horror and superhero stuff and all that because there is an aspect of it that feels like your the feelings you actually had and the experiences that you've had it's just dialed up to a thousand sure right yeah you know absolutely it's Mm -hmm. uh as a as a nerdy kid with glasses we can all like we can all we all we we could all identify with lois not appreciating clark kent yeah all all we could all appreciate with but i'm she's a career woman man she's got things to do okay how does she not how does she not know that i'm superman though right really obvious and honestly i i resisted every opportunity to get uh contact lenses partially because of the metaphorical you know what if you can't see how gorgeous i am with these glasses on yeah that's fine well and it wrecks you the know, jim gordon like, i'm good with yeah, that that's yeah true. and we can't <laughs> stray from that anymore right right uh, but you know what i mean it's like if yeah. if this confounds you yeah i'll tell another completely out of left field anecdote oh please i'm me, enjoying this <laughs> made me it made me believe in the superman uh clark kent thing 100 percent. please yeah so I'm friends with an actor named James Urbaniak. Okay. Uh, J- James is uh, the voice of Professor Venture on the Venture Brothers. Okay. He's done a lot of indie films. Okay. His partner on the Venture Brothers, uh, who plays his uh, bodyguard, mm-hmm. Brock Sampson, is... Uh, oh, my God, I'm spacing on his name. Uh, uh, Warburton. Patrick Warburton. Oh, right. You know Patrick Warburton <laughs> from Seinfeld, whatever it, enormous superman looking dude right mm-hmm. one comic-con again san diego is out to dinner with james and someone is throwing i think it was lemon wedges at us and sitting directly across the restaurant from me maybe 20 feet away is this huge dude with glasses on i do not recognize him and he's throwing lemon wedges at us and laughing his ass off and kept James and I get up kind of angry and we look and we go, oh, it's Patrick Warburton throwing <laughs> lemon wedges. Awesome. And I, I even said to him, I was like, I now believe 30, 50 years of Superman stories because I totally didn't recognize you <laughs> wearing glasses in a suit. Like, I, you know, I'm used to seeing you without the glasses on TV. Right. 
And he was like, that's really funny, Dave. You know, so uh, so glasses just, work. Yeah. He's a he's a hilarious dude. Well, but uh, but yeah, it's funny how a thing like that. And the first version of Superman that was ever filmed mm-hmm. is the uh, the Fleischer cartoons from the 1940s, mm-hmm. which I absolutely 100 percent recommend. They're the best Superman anything ever. Sure. And in in those. Lois and Superman do not hang out. Okay. She will she will see him for like literally she'll fall out of a building and some dude grabs her, puts her on top of another building and says, "Stay here." and flies away. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that she can't put together that that's Clark Kent is not terribly like literally the last sure. time she sees him was on the side of a exploding volcano at night. Okay. And you know, and then she's a thousand feet in the air and then she's lying on her back in the jungle watching him fly away. So like it's not it's only the modern version of Superman right. where she, they're sitting down and having dinner and she still doesn't recognize. <laughs> but, you know, in the in the 1978 Superman movie uh with Chris uh, Reeve. Chris Reeve sold that. Oh, that dreaming. is such a hard such a hard thing to sell an audience and he totally sells it where you go yeah she wouldn't see that yeah but anyway (laughs) yeah when he goes in and out i watched it recently and he goes in it there's i'm sure you know this scene the infamous scene where he goes in and out of clark kent right back to superman right back to clark kent and you see it and you're like oh i get why she doesn't recognize him that totally makes sense she he shows up to pick her up for the date after she's met superman Mm mm-hmm she walks out of the room and he literally like takes off the glasses and stands up straight and you're like, whoa, it's whoa, Superman. Yeah. <laughs> and then she comes back in the room and he's like, uh, I, you know, I'm yeah. going to take you out for a hamburger. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's delightful. Yeah, he was the real thing. There, there's a great interview that's been going around, uh, an old interview with him that's on YouTube where he talks about what Superman is and what Superman stands for. Oh, nice. And my wife and I always, I always say this. Don't let someone play Superman if they're not intrinsically decent. Sure. Like if they don't, Seriously. if they don't have that kind of decency. It's the yeah. same thing with Chris Evans and Captain America. Like he is that guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. he. Sure. You carry it with you. I didn't. You. Yeah. I initially didn't think he could play the part because I'd seen him very convincingly play douchebags in a in a handful of movies. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. that guy's not Steve Rogers. And then in <laughs> Captain America, you're like, no, he was actually having to work really hard to be a convincing douchebag. It's. Yeah. Uh, He's actually an incredibly nice human being that understands goodness, you know. <laughs> That's what you want. Um, yeah. So, okay, so Zorro was kind of your first horror comic, and is that correct? I think I think it was, I was doing it around the same time as the first issues of Elvira. I think oh, there was overlap. Oh, okay. There. Yeah, I think okay. those projects overlapped a little bit. And Elvira, here's, when I was... Uh, approached about doing it I had done Betty Page yes and my initial reaction and I love Elvira I've loved Elvira since she started sure. my mm-hmm. initial reaction was uh, is this gonna be my thing now oh, where they where I'm it's like, like sex, sex symbol of the month and you have to turn her into a comic book character right. that people who read comic books are gonna like follow her adventures mm-hmm. and my initial thought was like I don't know what to do with that and the artist that I've worked with the most, Dave Acosta, uh, who I did Twilight Zone The Shadow with and the Doc Savage book with, he actually saved me. Oh. Uh, he sent me art and covers from old comic books. There was a Bob Hope comic in the 1950s. Amazing. I had no idea. A Jerry Lewis comic. Wow. 
And the guy that did those also did a comedy comic. I think it was might have been for DC called Angel and the Ape. Okay. About a beautiful blonde girl who hung around with a gorilla. Oh. And they had and they had adventures together like you do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he sent me some pages of Angel and the Ape and some covers of Bob Hope. And he said, this is what we're doing. It's not a horror comic, really. Mm. The job is not to be scary on every page. The Mm. job is to be funny in at least every other panel. Sure. And if you look Mm. at it that way, not that you're writing an adventure horror comic, but you're writing a comedy comic set in the world of horror. Okay. Um, And we, you know, I think we still... Our villain, I think Vlad the Impaler is imposing and creepy, and I decided to go with sort of a historic Vlad. Um, We based him visually on, uh, there's an old Sean Connery movie where he wears a particularly ridiculous costume called Zardoz. Okay. Uh, Sounds ridiculous. He he has long hair and a big droopy mustache. Okay. uh, So I said he should have this kind of big sexy energy because uh, Dracula is often it's a different kind of sexy like the cultured you know he's in he's in a, a dress suit and all right. that the Refined. Lugosi version the you know the Langella version is essentially a 1970s Harlequin romance gothic hero mm-hmm. you know with his ch- chest open and I said no let's do the creepy warlord dictator that he was in real life yeah <laughs> but also make him a vampire okay because that's right. funny Yes. <laughs> uh, and there's a running political joke uh, that came to me when I was writing his first appearance. When when Elvira finally figures out who she is, who he is, yeah. she says, "Oh man, you're the second worst Vlad in history." Uh, and we, I never actually come out and say the name Putin anywhere. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and also, I love that Vlad the Impaler is like I literally put people's head on stakes. Who the hell could be worse than me? That's like <laughs> right. that's that's crazy talk. No one is worse than me. My favorite Vlad the Impaler joke, and I will pat my own back because this cracks Please. me up. Please. When it's revealed that the villain is, uh, the true villain is Faust, the man who sold his soul to the devil for all the secrets of the universe. And yeah. he meets Vlad for the first time and he says, I sold my soul to the devil for all the secrets in the universe. You sold your soul to the devil for Romania. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not even like all of Romania, like the dankest ugliest part of romania like <laughs> hey man you do you do you you know what you yeah. want good for you but dream big Vlad. Yeah. you know like uh but yeah i uh i didn't when i started i didn't know it was going to be faust okay um i say a lot of comic book writing the schedules are so fast and a lot of what i've learned to do and i hope it works is it's like i'm making a salad by in the first issue, I throw some sliced cucumber in the air and some radishes and some spinach and some carrots. And then I, for four issues, run around with a bowl going, this is going to be a salad when it lands. I swear <laughs> to God. Like when it, when it hits the bowl and you, set up, and you set up things and you don't know that it's going to work. Uh, when I wrote that very first issue, I didn't know why they were time traveling I didn't know who was making them both show up in the same place. I thought I could do, I had an idea of doing a satire of Doctor Who and make it a rebel time lord of some Mm -hmm. kind that was doing it. Nice. Uh, I can't remember where I got the idea for it to be 
Faust specifically. Um, but I've always been fascinated by that character, who was supposedly based on a real man. Uh, okay. Who was Georg Faust. He was the professor of alchemy at Wittenberg University in the late 16th century. Wow. Real dude. And I did some research on it. You know, and there's famous operas and poems and whatever. I actually snuck in a quote from one of the poems at one point. But, um, and what I love about Dave Acosta, we have the very, we have a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same reference points, even though he's a bit younger than I am. Mm -hmm. There's a terrible Faust movie starring the great British actor, the late great British actor, Richard Burton. And when I said, I think the villain's going to be Faust, before I could even say, and he he's, obviously it's got to look like Richard Burton, he sent me a screen, you know, a picture of Richard Burton from the terrible movie and went like this, and I went, that's my boy. <laughs> it's like the joke of, uh, a lot of the stuff is needlessly complex, and it cracks me up. Um, <laughs> like, Mary Shelley's in the first issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is not what Mary Shelley looks like. Okay. Right. But in Bride of Frankenstein, the great British actress who plays the Bride of Frankenstein mm-hmm. also plays Mary Shelley. Oh. And she's gorgeous and sexy and looks I a little bit like I love that you did that. I, and I look, noticed and that. She, and I and honestly, that she, she looks quite a bit like my wife also. There you go. So I sent the pictures to Dave and I was like, can it be, can it be uh, Elsa Lanchester? And here's a little secret about great. comic book artists. They all say they are bad at likenesses. Okay. And they are all good at likenesses. They are just lazy and they don't want to have to do it. <clears throat> okay. Um, and when you tell them it's Elsa Lanchester, well, then it's got to look like Elsa Lanchester in a bunch of panels, and that's a lot of work. <laughs> but he did an amazing job. Yeah. Something that he didn't do consciously, but I think it's there if you look for it. And, man, I wish we had done it consciously, and I would have written it a little differently had I known he was going to do this. And I didn't quite have time to rewrite all of their dialogue to reflect it. I think Shelley and Byron in that issue look a lot like Bill and Ted. Really? <laughs> yeah. Go back and look at them. One of them has like totally kind of shaggy look. brown yeah. hair. Like, you know, he doesn't quite have Ted's curly blonde hair, right. but the face is kind of Ted. Yeah. And I love the idea of these two respected poets. Yeah. But really, they're Bill and Ted. You know, they're really just a couple of fucking dopes and, you know, not to be taken seriously. And Mary Shelley is the one to be taken seriously. And in terms of, like, the deep, deep dive into uh, just literature and history and all that, um, I don't know if you read the second volume yet where Elvira goes to hell. Elvira's Inferno. No, not yet. <laughs> I didn't know that was out yet. Oh my gosh! I okay. don't think it's out yet. The individual oh. issue, the individual issues came out like a year ago, but I think they're still. They keep pushing it back. I think it might be in October now. Okay. So you know the the series ends with Mephistopheles coming to collect Faust. Right. You know, and Elvira says, "I am not with him," <laughs> and she and she takes she gets taken to hell. Right. Um. So when I started writing issue five what's she should be in whatever is faust's personal hell to start with because that's where she gets sent okay faust's face that we've used is richard burton faust was obsessed with helen of troy and in the the goethe poem he has a love affair with helen of troy the most beautiful woman in history supposedly okay uh richard burton was married to Liz Taylor and had a famously oh. horrible, mm-hmm. painful, argumentative, 
tempestuous love with them. They made a movie together called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where they played a pair of academics who live in a shabby little house, hate each other, get drunk, throw things at one another, and are endlessly fighting. <laughs> Play was written by Edward Albee. Movie was directed by Mike Nichols. I think it's his first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, big movie, won Academy Awards, all that. So when I was thinking, what is hell to my Richard Burton Faust? I was like, oh, <laughs> it's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's awesome. So the first page of issue five, Elvira finds herself in a shabby suburban house and Helen of Troy in a shabby housecoat is throwing a cocktail glass at Faust. <laughs> and that's the and that's the that's scene. And then she, you know, she says, I've had enough of this and steps out the door and what's outside the door is flames and, you know, cavern <laughs> and all this. Of course. And uh, I sent Dave Acosta there's an illustrated version of Dante's Inferno done by a great Spanish artist named Gustav Dore. Very famous star. You've seen it even if you didn't know that's what you've seen. Uh-huh. And every horror movie director has referenced those images over and over again. Because uh-huh. like me, every horror d- movie director saw their parents' copy of the, the Dore illustrated Inferno when they were a kid and went, nope. This is, <laughs> yeah. this is extraordinary haunting stuff. So I, I actually bought a copy on eBay and sent it to David Costa and said, rather than sending you individual screen grabs for the next four issues, this is the visual style. Uh, and that's the visual style when he opened the door. And uh, when I sent him the script for that issue, he's like, are we going to like attach a syllabus to this? Because he's like, you're referencing Edward Al- Albee, <laughs> Goethe, and Dante in three pages. Like, yeah. it's very dense, lit, <laughs> lit professor. And I think mm-hmm. I there's a degree to which I am absolutely a frustrated college professor. <laughs> and uh, I absolutely believe in fiction as a vehicle for teaching history and literature and you know and again i love the idea because this stuff what this stuff happened this is not a new idea that i've had this is something that everybody does sometimes you do it because you're stuck for an idea like what is hell like for georg faust Mm -hmm. oh it's one it's it's who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes it's because you're like, it would be fun to work in a reference to blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, but uh, like when I was a kid, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Right. The Russian agent's name on ba- Rocky and Bullwinkle is Boris Badenov. It's funny. It's funny in and of itself. It's okay. a silly, goofy name. Mm-hmm. I was in my 20s when I discovered there's a world famous Russian opera called Boris Gudanov. Oh. <laughs> nice. Okay. That's what that joke is. I didn't know that. I thought it was cute regardless. And I'm very lucky. I watched the 1930s, 1940s Bugs Bunny cartoons mm-hmm. were on TV all the time when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. My father was born in 1924 and he was literally able to go, this is a reference to gasoline rationing under FDR. Oh. <laughs> like, this, is a, this is a joke about you know, in the in the one where Bugs Bunny faces the gremlin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he says, "Do you think that was a gremlin?" And the gremlin shows up next to his ear and shouts, "Well, it ain't Wendell Wilkie." It's a funny name. <laughs> Wendell Wilkie is a funny name. <laughs> Wendell Wilkie unsuccessfully ran against FDR for president in the okay. 1940s. You don't have to know that for that to be funny, right. but it's nice to have someone say Bugs Bunny is mocking a Republican candidate for president that's what that's what that is that's the joke 
Uh, and if you want to get really political, gremlins sabotage the American war effort. He is comparing a gremlin sabotaging the American war effort against Nazism to the Republican political <laughs> I love uh, that you, you bring can... that like Bugs Bunny comedy into your own writing where you like, yeah. you know, yeah. that's awesome. And it works well with Elvira though. That It's yeah, totally Elvira, great. That's yeah. exactly El- it. Yeah. Elvira is literally Bugs Bunny totally. when, he dresses up like, when he dresses up like a girl except he's actually a girl in this case. He's actually a yeah. uh, female. No, yeah. that's her... People have complimented me, and it's very nicely, on capturing her voice. And it is a little like, how does that come so easy to me? Uh, But it's, that's all on Cassandra, who created the character and who's been playing her for Mm -hmm. a number of years. Mm -hmm. It's such a, one of the things that makes characters appealing to the public, whether it be in a context of a TV show or a movie or whatever, is that you know them. Right. And they behave the way you expect them to behave. Not, not that surprise in is and also a, but like you, Elvira goes into a situation. You know what her take on that situation is going to be, right. and that's fun. So I found really quickly it was super easy to figure out what joke Elvira would make in any given situation, and I don't. It's. It's such a well-defined comic character mm-hmm. that if you just go, Elvira meets Frankenstein, it's like you know what the jokes are going to be. Sure, the jokes come sure. really easily. Yeah. I'll also say as an aside that every issue, there was like one joke where it's like, oh, this is really filthy. This is a, <laughs> this is a particularly filthy, dirty, wrong, bad joke. Right. That would always be the one that I'd see screen grammed on Instagram going, <laughs> someone going, oh my God, this is so funny. In the first issue, when uh, Mary Shelley is saying how they discovered her, mm-hmm. and she says, yes, we were looking for our friend when we came across your coffin, and she says, yeah, I hope you brought a towel to clean it up. <laughs> That's a filthy, filthy, disgusting yeah. joke. Uh, totally Elvira. I was like, yeah. I was like should, I, should, Elvira, I, yeah. should I leave the jizz joke in the Elvira comic? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, no one stopped me. Yeah. So I guess I'm going to do it. And Fantastic. yeah, that was always the <laughs> that was always the most popular stuff. That's uh, awesome. So did was Elvira Cassandra? Was she involved with the comic? Very much. Okay. Very much. Um, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say that she had made the deal with Dynamite with great fanfare it was announced that it was going to get started mm-hmm. I didn't really I wasn't paying attention at the time and the first creative team handed in stuff that was rejected wow okay uh, I want to be clear that it wasn't entirely their fault that it was rejected I think Cassandra and her people had an idea of like maybe we should go another way than we usually go mm. but that way turned out like I and I when I was asked to pitch it I said can you send me what got rejected so I don't do that yeah and I read it and it was a the I the story ideas were fine but it wasn't terribly funny okay. and it wasn't and it particularly wasn't very one-liner quippy which is her whole thing. yeah that's the whole thing yeah so I uh I tried to figure out what adventure I could send her on that would be fun. Mm-hmm. The idea for it being time travel and the great horror creators 
what came from well she's a horror host so she's always like introducing things from the history of horror film yeah right so using her as a vehicle to go here's mary shelley here's bram stoker here's it's like that's kind of her deal and it would be thrilling for her to meet these people so that's already a fun and then you have to have an antagonist i was like well let's let's make it vlad because he's real Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. can also make him a vampire Uh, and it was also fun to write mary shelley and fun to write uh poe though when i wrote the first (laughs) when i wrote the first page (laughs) me too when i wrote the first page of edgar Allan poe i was like oh this is going to be a lot of work sure because this guy to get poe right it can't be let's go to the bar it's gonna be i know of a local tavern where at we might (laughs) you know it's got to be a chatty crazy paragraph and i love poe i can i for a long i used to be able to recite huge chunks of it off the top of my head i've mostly lost it now but uh on the whole of a long gray afternoon in the autumn of the year when the crowds hung oppressively low in the heavens I was passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country. Uh, it's another sentence in there. When I at last drew nigh of the melancholy house of Usher. There, it's, I, wow. I dropped at least three <laughs> sentences out of it, but it's so gorgeous. One of the yeah. first things I ever memorized when I was a kid, because it's just so perfect, yeah. is mm-hmm. uh, the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured upon insults, I vowed revenge. You made uh, him so cute too, so yeah. like lovable. Which made well, him awesome. yeah, and you know the thing is, he was. I researched all of these people, and he was a terrible person. Really? Oh my <laughs> yeah, God. I, I, I kind of wanted to steer away from that. And honestly, the sure. fourth issue was originally going to be either Lovecraft or oh, Bride okay. of Frankenstein, and I went, yeah, let's do James Whale. I don't want to have to deal with Lovecraft's racism, even to make fun of him for it. Sure. I was like, Good it's call. a little too, it's a little too weighty a thing to just kind of make a bunch of jokes about sure. him being a terrible racist. And there's also, look at HBO. There's enough Lovecraft-related media out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, perfect example, by the way, of what a great artist Dave is and how he gets my whole thing. That fourth issue of Elvira, whether you recognize them or not. Every page is a ton of 1930s Hollywood cameos. Yeah. And uh, on the in the final sequence, when the security guards show up, I just said two security guards show up and draw their pistols and blah, 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 blah. And when I get the pages, I laughed. It's Abbott and Costello are the two security guards. And they're in the costumes they were wearing in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. <laughs> so I rewrote the dialogue so that they called each other by name. So they're Chick and Wilbur, who are the mm-hmm. characters in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That's awesome. And look, if there's any influence on this series that I can absolutely point to, it's Abbott and Costello sure. meets Frankenstein. That yeah. is absolutely. And when you're a kid, that movie, I mean, when you're a kid in the 70s, that movie is terrifying. Like, it's funny, <laughs> but it's the Frankenstein and the Dracula and the end, that's all scary. Mm-hmm. And here's a piece of trivia that ab- I still i am obsessed with this. Okay. Bela Lugosi is famous for what? Playing Dracula, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Now, he played him on stage a bunch of times, all that. He plays him in two movies. Two oh. total movies. And those movies are Dracula... 
and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> Those are the only two authentic Bela Lugosi Dracula movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And I also think he must have been pissed off at Karloff because Karloff wouldn't do it. Okay. Right. You know, he thought, oh, this will be a big, you know, big reunion. We'll all get together and do our universal monster thing like we did yeah. in the old days. And it's like, and Karloff was like, no, yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm not wearing that makeup again. Let me send, let me send my stunt man over and he'll be fine. So, uh, but yeah, and Bram Stoker, yeah. I've never liked va vampire stories. There's okay. an element oh, to, really? There's an, there's an element to them that has always put me off. And oh, I've never really quite been able to identify what that element is okay and then i then i researched bram stoker's life and found out why he wrote dracula and what's behind his writing of dracula and i went well oh. this is why i don't identify with this and it's in that issue of elvira yeah that is their relationship mm -hmm. bram mm -hmm. stoker's wife was a knockout gorgeous woman who mm -hmm. would not sleep with him did not like him didn't like to spend time with him didn't really love him Wow. She was obsessed sexually with Oscar Wilde, who oh. was, of course, gay. But Dracula is Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. Dracula is... Okay. Who Bra that whole book is Bram Stoker hating on Oscar Wilde for his wife's sexual obsession with him. <laughs> and I am just not a particularly motivated by jealousy person. Sure, good. Uh, sure, particular, good I mean, maybe when I was 15... Sure. But even even as a kid, I was like, Dracula movies, I now look at it, it's like, they're all about the girl of your dreams falling for the worst guy in the world. And I always found that a really unpleasant story idea. I don't want to see that. I don't, that's, yeah. that's gross. That's, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, that's the version of the love triangle where she's more sexually attracted to the guy who isn't you. Blech. Right. I don't want, right. I don't want that. So reading that that's what was in Bram Stoker's head. Bram Stoker literally died of, uh, I think it was syphilis, which he contracted from prostitutes because his wife wouldn't sleep with him. Whoa. Like, oh, that's his story. dang, that's deep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's what Dracula is about. Okay. It's about sexual jealousy. And that's why I've always been like, eh, that's kind of gross, though. Yeah. I mean, in things like Buffy the Vampire, you know, so many... Ver different versions of vampire story not written by Bram Stoker take it in such different interesting directions sure. that's fine but at its root the whole my favorite thing in the in that issue aside from the title which is my favorite thing I've ever written Stoker I hardly know her yes <laughs> uh, it's like the cheesiest joke when I came up with that title I was like oh my god that's I've waited my whole life for this moment yeah. um, but uh, when they're preparing to do battle with Vlad and get his wife back. And uh, Stoker says, he must have hypnotized her with some kind of mesmerism. And Elvira's like, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that you're kind of unattractive and he's a huge, sexy dude yeah, with a cool sure. accent or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, he, he hypnotized her with his vampire powers. That's yeah. what this is about. He wants to marry everything he sees. And, and that's the, and that's also the joke. It's like it's Bram Stoker saying, "My wife doesn't love me because Oscar Wilde is magic." You know, not, right, right. no, he's just way more interesting than you are. <laughs> like, deal with it. He's super funny, and he's a better writer in all sorts of things that you're not. So, right. you know, and again, there's also there is some post. 
there's some interpretation of the story now that uh, that Stoker was uh, closeted, and that oh, he maybe oh. loved Oscar Wilde even more than his wife oh did. Oh my god! Which again also <laughs> explains why you know I'm uh, to quote Harry Shearer, I'm as straight as German railroad track, and it does like that. I'm not endlessly fascinated by Oscar Wilde. You know, like it just yeah. doesn't. <laughs> creepy dudes in capes. I, I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. Not my yeah. thing. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, it was so much fun to play with all of those characters and yeah, play awesome. in that world and do it in a way that, I mean, it's a ch- just like everything else, just like Batman. Yeah. How do you do Dracula in a way that Dracula hasn't been done before? Um, mm-hmm. And people have done the sexy warlord version, I'm sure, before. But I hadn't seen him in this context. Sure. Um, sure. So, but yeah, that's that's always the uh, that that's always the challenge. You yeah. know. Yeah, and I love that you brought in so much history, and so like, not only are you going there for Elvira, but hopefully you know some horror history or just history in in general, and it makes it that much more interesting if people are able to. To catch those little things that you put in there, you put a bunch of Easter eggs in there for us. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I try to. I mean, partially you can't help it, uh, and you know the thing is that what everyone assumes is original. Mm-hmm. That I promise you, that writer was referencing older works, bringing in their friends and family members as characters. Like we're mm-hmm. always we're always referring to things. We're always. Sure. You know, where did stories come from? They come from what you personally have experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, the thing that I do with Kevin Eastman is semi-autobiographical based on the creation of the Ninja Turtles and all that. Uh, He and his partner, you know, no longer work together, had a falling out, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And people always ask me if the character based on his partner in the show, in the, in the comic, which is called Drawing Blood. Mm Mm-hmm. How much is that based on Peter Laird? And I always say the same thing. I've never met Peter Laird, but I have a contentious relationship with my sister. I'm writing about my sister. I'm not writing about Peter Laird. Like, (laughs) I'm not commenting on Kevin's experience with Peter. And I even made them siblings instead of just... Perfect example. Making them siblings is a trick I learned from Frank Capra. Oh. It's a great book called... Lost Horizon, mm-hmm. about a British diplomat who, with his small group of associates, is whisked away to this paradise in the Himalayas where they want him to live and be a part of their colony of philosophers. In the book, the main character has a young assistant who wants to get back to civilization and doesn't want to stay. And ultimately, he convinces the hero to leave. And it works okay in the book. But in the movie, Frank Capra made the characters brothers. Because it made more sense that you wouldn't let your brother wander out into the Himalayas alone to die. Mm -hmm. And leave paradise on behalf of your secretary. Right. You know, on on, on behalf of the guy that handed you your files in the diplomatic office. It wasn't... The bond, like I said, it's a beautiful book. It's well written, but the bond wasn't fiercely strong. And you're like, literally, this guy is literally leaving paradise on earth 
because his co-worker wants to go back to London. Mm. That seems like a, <laughs> a, yeah. that's a weak-ass rationalization. So I literally like had that in mind when I was creating the character of the co-creator of the the Ninja Turtles uh, pastiche. In our thing, they're called the Radically Rearranged Ronin Ragdolls, and they are three cats. <laughs> they are girls, they are cats, and they fight crime. And instead of being named after, uh, instead of being named after uh, Renaissance painters, they're named after Japanese animators. Okay. So oh, okay, cool. Uh, I love it. That's awesome. That's, cool. the, uh, that's available. You, you can go on Comixology and get a digital copy of that. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And also at Kevin Eastman's website, which is Kevin Eastman. I'd actually recommend that. KevinEastmanStudios.com. If you mm-hmm. click on okay. Drawing Blood, for 10 bucks you can download all four issues of Drawing Blood, which is the contemporary story of this comic book creator, and his rise and fall and what it's like to create a billion dollar worldwide franchise and then kind of lose control of it and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we realized that the fans who love Kevin and his stuff would really want to see the thing that character created that was like the Ninja Turtles. So I wrote and Kevin drew and an artist named Troy Little did finishing on the first issue of the Radically Rearranged Ronin Ragdolls. Uh, and it's a pastiche, like it literally is meant to be an object from 1991. The, okay. the, it takes place in 1991. All the cultural cool. references are from 1991. Nice. I, I, uh, we'll, instead, we'll get it. Instead of instead of Manhattan, I said it in Queens because I'm a big Mets fan, and they can make a lot. Like literally, the last yeah. fight, the last fight in the issue takes place at Shea Stadium while it's deserted. So. I could make a bunch of jokes about the New York Mets, but, uh, and yeah, the, uh, the, the three, the three cats, the gentle philosophical one is named Miyazaki. Oh, nice. The leader is named Tezuka, who's the guy who created, uh, Astro Boy. Mm -hmm. And the big, the violent, aggressive one is named Otomo, who's the director of, uh, Akira. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. And visually... Tezuka wears bright red boots like Astro Boy. Uh-huh. Uh, Miyazaki has a little leather flying helmet like Nausicaa from Miyazaki's Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. And Atoma wears a red leather jacket like uh, Tetsuo. Not that, I can't remember the name of the character in Akira who wears the red leather jacket. But in, in Akira, the red leather jacket has a pill on the back, like uh-huh. drugs. Uh-huh. And it, and Atoma, our Atomo has a piece of salmon nigiri a piece of sushi piece of sushi because she's cool. a cat she likes fish um and it's super when i wrote the first issue i was like man i could write a hundred of these these girls are so oh, much fun that's cool and the the damage i did to myself as a writer she doesn't do it all the time but miyazaki frequently speaks in haiku mm-hmm. and there's an eight page se- sequence where she tells the origin story of the uh rag dolls uh-huh. entirely in haiku it's eight pages <laughs> amazing of and i even because she's a cat not mm-hmm. a japanese lady raised in queens by a japanese mother uh i decided to alter the form of haiku and make i might remember this wrong but basically haiku doesn't rhyme it's not supposed to rhyme right it's five syllables seven syllables five syllables mm-hmm I created a form, a long form, epic haiku, 
where in the first haiku, the second and third line rhyme, in the second haiku, the second and third line rhyme, and then in the third haiku, the first and second line rhyme. Okay. And then the pattern repeats for eight pages. Woo! <laughs> nice! That's as hard Dang. as I have ever made. My, my wife always says she knows when I'm writing Miyazaki because I'm sitting at my desk counting on my fingers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. That's so, no easy feat. That's amazing. But yeah, that I'm... I, you should check it out. I'm very, yeah. I'm very proud of it. Just like everything I do, it's very, very meta. Uh, the Ninja Turtles, as an example. Sure. And again, how many people read the are huge Ninja Turtle fans and are not aware of this? They're actually, it's Daredevil's origin from Marvel Comics, and they're right after it. So okay. the origin of the origin of Daredevil is young Matt Murdock is walking down the street. There's a truck barreling towards a blind man foreshadowing <laughs> he pushes the blind man out of the way of the truck a, a, a barrel of chemicals falls off the truck splashes him in the face and blinds him but also uh, attenuates his senses mm -hmm. so he can hear and sense things so well that he doesn't need sight anymore and he becomes a superhero mm -hmm. the Ninja Turtles literally the barrel bounces down the street crashes into a kid walking across the street with a terrarium with four turtles in it and the goo the ooze as it's called in the universe yeah. the mm -hmm. ooze saturates the turtles and a nearby rat named splinter and <laughs> and falls into the sewer and the ninja turtles emerge so oh, they're sort goodness. of piggybacking on nice. daredevil's origin that's awesome <laughs> so with that in mind the origin of the ragdolls we decided to just take that and go ridiculous with it. Mm -hmm. uh, in our comic book universe, there's a version of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, the secret organization from Marvel, mm -hmm. called DRAW, D-R-A-W. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Their mm -hmm. opponents, by the way, instead of Thrush, is called Flush. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the joke that we haven't even gotten <laughs> to telling yet is that obviously in poker, a Flush beats a Draw. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I'm going to have a guy, one of his henchmen say, yeah, but, you know, flush has another meaning, and this is really embarrassing for us that we're agents <laughs> of flush. Like, we don't want people – it's really humiliating to be an agent of flush. They're like, no, no, man, it's a reference to poker. Like, we know you think that. That's not what anyone else thinks when they hear this. Anyway, we'll get to that joke someday. Um, so mirroring the Ninja Turtles thing, mm -hmm. uh, one of the more famous artists to ever work on – Agent of Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, is named Jim Steranko. Mm -hmm. So the chief of draw is named Bull Steranko. He's drawn to look a little bit like Jim, and uh, he he gets three kittens from a shelter so he can experiment a super soldier drug on the cats. And oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, during their experimentation, the secret draw base is attacked by agents of Flush. And as the three cats are escaping through this shield, this draw science facility, they run through the gamma ray room, the cosmic ray room, <laughs> and the genetic mutagen room. So basically, it's the Fantastic Four's, or well, it's the Hulk's origin, the Fantastic mm, right. Four's origin, and the X-Men's origin. Uh, <laughs> so, like, we piled every Marvel origin you can have 
because they're it's the super. I haven't even mentioned in the comic itself what they were being dosed with, but it was it's a super soldier formula. Oh so they God. escape, and then suddenly they find that in captivity they were cats, maybe okay. getting a little smarter mm-hmm. from the uh-huh. drug they were being given. But as they escape the facility, they're walking upright and speaking to one another, and they're like, "You talk, I talk too. This is crazy." <laughs> And they get adopted by a kindly Japanese couple that run a sushi restaurant in Queens. Nice. Called Tiger Sushi. Uh, and they're, they're abs- the two people visually are absolutely based on a kindly couple I know that run a sushi restaurant in Hollywood uh, <laughs> called Tenmasa. And uh, they grow up watching Japanese movies on TV because mm-hmm. they have Japanese parents, <laughs> Japanese-American right. parents. So they're like American teenage girl cats. Yeah. But... <laughs> heavily steeped in Kurosawa and anime nice. and all of that. So that's the, but yeah, just repeating the joke of tacking a Marvel, tacking their origin onto the end of a famous Marvel, <laughs> Marvel origin. Awesome. Seems like awesome. a really, a really funny gag. So that one's out already, right? We can get yes. that. The okay. fir- we did a Kickstarter for the first four issues of drawing blood and the ragdolls one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the story of Drawing Blood is that the hero is kind of a 40-something, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. before he played Tony Stark, you know, when we thought his career was all right. over, uh, mm-hmm. dude. And he takes a lot of drugs, and he frequently hallucinates, and he hallucinates the ragdolls talking to him. Oh. Um, so that's the... And it's drawn in something, I think, kind of unusual... Three artists draw the comic. An artist named Ben Bishop draws objective reality. Mm-hmm. Kevin Eastman, who drew the Ninja Turtles, draws flashbacks to the main okay. character's childhood. Mm-hmm. So they're in black and white. They, you know, they look like the early Ninja Turtles comics. And then when he hallucinates, this uh, Canadian artist named Troy Little draws these sort of cartoony, cartoon character-looking versions of uh, the Ragdolls and of the main characters. So we did that. We did a second Kickstarter around this time last year for another four issues of that. And there's a two-part 40-page Ragdolls special that will accompany that. Since it's set in the world of comic books, we ne- we didn't see this in advance, by the way. We wanted, to, we wanted to tell a story set in the world of comic books. What it never occurred to us before we started was that a world of comic books involves a world of creators mm. and that everyone he meets who's a fictional character, we kind of have to come up with what they're famous for mm-hmm. okay. and what they're known for. So he has a mentor named Frank Forrest who's based a little bit on Jack Kirby, a little bit on Wally Wood, Frank Forrest, I'm not very original with character name. Um, <laughs> and he created a character named uh, Night Avenger who's essentially our Batman, the shadow spirit character. And uh, there's another character that we introduce in the story who's a young female comic book creator who's like 19 years old in the present day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I wanted to, you know, Frank Forrest is the past of comic books. And this woman Mm -hmm. whose name is Amanda Cavallari is the future of comic books. And she has a webcomic called GTFO Girl. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I, you know... I, I absolutely believe a writer should be able to write it, anything, but I also believe that creating opportunities for people and having a variety of voices is good. 
So That's one of the main things I wanted to do with GTFO Girl is I wanted to create a character that I could then hand off to young women mm -hmm. and say, I don't want to write GTFO Girl. I could fake it, but I would be faking it. I would be trying very hard to sound like a 20-year-old girl in 2020. And it's easy for me to sound like a sex symbol from 1982. <laughs> it is not easy for me to sound like a teenage yeah. girl from 2020. Yeah. So a writer named Amanda Debert, who's a great comic book writer, uh, wrote a four-page uh, GTFO girl story. And I found mm -hmm. this artist named Skylar Partridge, another young woman, incredibly talented. I saw her on Twitter and she had a she had a great drawing of Tank Girl, and I was like, "That's the oh, energy." Awesome. Tank, we yeah. love GTFO Tank Girl. Girl is very influenced by Tank Girl, uh, mm -hmm. so I was like, "That's the energy I want." And she she'll be drawing a four page, uh, and we'll probably include that with the next trade paperback collection of uh, Volume Two of Drawing Blood. But oh, uh, awesome. but we like having all of these like sort of spin off ideas of the Ragdolls and Night Avenger. Night Avenger allows me to comment on the entire history of superhero comics and Batman comics. Mm -hmm. GTFO mm -hmm. Girl allows me to comment on where comics are going, you know, and the, and the ragdolls are like a way to comment on that, that indie comic that became a giant global sensation, specifically the Turtles, but it's not really mm -hmm. the only one. Um, and that's such an unusual... Thing a lot of autobiographical comics, like American Splendor, are about really indie guys doing autobiographical comics, mm. and I don't think there's ever been something that's like inside the world of a a, a popular like about a person who created a billion dollar franchise mm -hmm. and what that does to you if it happens to you when you're 20 years old. And you have no idea to do what to do with the money. Right. As an example, mm -hmm. Kevin Eastman in 1989 bought the Batmobile from the Tim Burton movie. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, like he literally just like called up Warner Brothers and said, "How much for uh, that thing's great? If you're not going to use it in the second movie, I I, I want to I want to buy it." Um, yeah. And he Amazing. he I think he gave it to a superhero museum or sold it to a collector yeah. at some point. But for a few years, wow. he had that Batmobile and would drive it around a little bit. And wow. uh, <laughs> you know, that's a you do crazy things when you have that kind of money. Yeah, I wouldn't know, yeah. but I'm I'm told. <laughs> you know. One day, one day. <laughs> yeah. right. That's awesome. That's I I love that like uh, Elvira because I had found you through Elvira's comic, but right. like it's literally just like. A, a, a small portion of your comic book timeline like you like to go all over the place you don't like to be a, a niche writer per se mm -hmm. but it's also awesome that you take the time to really dive into each of you know each part of your story and make it like three stories in one you know it's like if yeah. you know the joke you know the joke and if you don't you're not leaving anybody out yeah. you know well you, you my father was a novelist he wrote over 200 published novels it never made him super wealthy there was a period in the mm -hmm. early 70s where we had a we had a good bunch of money but mm -hmm. uh it was very much a roller coaster but he absolutely taught me that you take it seriously you take every job seriously and i will tell you Same. a horror related story about that during a very slow period in his career mm -hmm. he got the job writing a novelization Do you know what a novelization is it's when you get a no. script to a movie and you turn it into a novel oh right okay, okay. 
he did a, he did Beneath the Planet of the Apes. That's oh, yeah. sort of probably his most famous novelization. Okay. Wow. Which, by the way, if you see a copy on eBay or in your local, you know, Goodwill, it's a fantastically well-written book. It's, it's nice. much better than the movie. But during a downtime, he got a job writing the novelization of Friday the 13th, Part 3, 3D. Oh. No way! Oh, okay. <laughs> I always tell people, yes, he wrote it in three D. Awesome. Well, the whole time he was writing it, he existed in three dimensions. So, but it's a terrible script. Okay. It's it's a terrible movie. It's a terrible script. He wasn't excited by the prospect of having to turn this crappy, low budget horror script yeah. into a readable novel. Mm-hmm. Book shows up. the The script shows up. He says, "I'm you read it. You read it first. I read it. I said, yeah, it's terrible. Um, he takes the script. He goes down into his office. Door closes. Silence for about a half hour. Then I start hearing the typewriter. Worked on a manual typewriter. Wow. And uh, about three hours later, he comes up out of his office with pages in his hand. And he says to me, uh, I want you to, I'm doing something really great with Jason here on page three. This is really, this is really you're going to love this. It's terrific. And I just was like, you already love it. Like Aww. it's the dumbest, worst job in the world. It's a, <laughs> it's an abuse of your talent that you have to do this thing to yeah. keep a roof over our head and food in our mouths. But mm-hmm. you, within it, within three hours, you found a way to go. No, no, this is gonna, this is gonna be great. It'll be great. <laughs> That's and I try to take that into everything I do. I don't think, as a comic book writer, I've never had to do something that a project that I didn't believe in i've never been given an assignment where i went i don't want it and i'll say this for dynamite they have never i have never gotten a single note for them that was tone down the politics tone down the feminism don't tell this story Mm -hmm. tell that story good good that's good they i have i have had complete creative freedom over there um but uh what was i gonna say but as a filmmaker the one feature film out there with my name on it as writer and director, there are things I ghost wrote and ghost directed that don't have my name on it. Mm-hmm. But the one with my name on it, I was cutting low-budget movies for a producer named David Hevner. Google, if you must. Uh, made a thousand direct-to-video movies in the 90s. And in 97, he had this horrible 40-page script called... 40 Pages is not a feature, by the way called kick of death (laughs) and he gave it to me and he said i want you to make this and i said can i completely rewrite it and he said sure but the main character has to be a kickstarter and his love interest has to be a stripper and i had a moment of all the like worst exploitation film ironically i married a stripper but that's another story entirely uh, only only a burlesque dancer herself can call herself a stripper. You cannot call them strippers. Uh, but my wife will happily call herself a stripper, or at least a, a, reti- a semi-retired stripper. Um, I had a moment of like, ugh. And then I remembered Friday the 13th Part 3. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, a kickboxer and a stripper are human beings who have human being emotions and human being experiences and an arc can be made of their stories and you are you have no right calling yourself a writer if you go I don't think I can write something about a kickboxer 
Right. Yeah. Right. It's like right. I should be able to write something about anyone totally. or anything. And like I said, yes, I would rather, since I have the space to do so, I would rather let a young woman write and draw get the fuck out girl because sure. that's appropriate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. as an employer i like employing people i don't have yeah. to write everything that our company publishes i'm perfectly mm-hmm. fine not doing that but if it was a job you know if someone came to me and said i'm gonna pay you to write get the fuck out I, i'm gonna pay you to write a 20 year old girl in 2020 well, I guess I'm going to have to subscribe to Teen Vogue and figure out what the hell 20, 20 year old girls sound like right now. Yeah. And yeah. learn it. And, you know, I and there know. are things like, you know, because my father wrote private eye novels in the 1950s. And I think oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I think that and being married to a burlesque dancer for many, many years is why Dynamite thought of me for Betty Page. Mm hmm. Even though they didn't, they said it can be set anywhere and you can do anything. Just, you know, come back with a pitch and we'll see if Betty Page's people like Mm it. Um, But I grew up with someone that spoke the way people spoke in the 40s and 50s. So that language comes absolutely 100% naturally to me. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mm -hmm. I sometimes talk like that and have to... I forget that certain expressions have completely fallen out of the English language. <laughs> yeah. My favorite, I don't ask people, how are you? When I greet a friend, I say, how's tricks? That is not a thing anybody says anymore. And right. people under a certain age will sometimes just stare at me blankly and go, like, what, do you say? what are tricks? What? what do you mean? And I'm like, I would think from context, you would understand that how's tricks means what's happening, what's going on, yeah. how are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I grew up hearing that, and it's the first thing out of my mouth. Hey, hey man, how's tricks? And <sighs> it seems completely natural to me. That's and it's utterly foreign to some people yeah. at a certain... They're like, what is, what is what? that even... You know, yeah. and it's like in 1930s, you know, uh, in Dashiell Hammett, you know, what's the rumpus? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. My father didn't even talk like that anymore. Um, But that, to me, part of the fun, I mean, and it's a big part of being a fun, of the fun of being a writer, Mm -hmm. is speaking in a language not your own, in a dialect not your own, being Mm -hmm. able to put on, I am not an exceptionally pretty Southern belle from 1953. Okay. <laughs> but I can imagine who Betty Page is. Uh, I've known women like Betty Page my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known I've known Betty Pages in their 60s and 70s. I have known Betty Pages yeah. in their teens. I have known Betty Pages in their 20s. I know the culture of the early 1950s really well. So all of that makes it enjoyable. And I also... I take pains to be correct in the sense that, as an example, there was a there's an issue of Betty Page, I can't remember which one, where her partner, Lissa, says some completely outlandish thing to where I can't remember, you know, this has happened and this has happened and this has happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And she replies, do what now? I grew up hearing Southerners say, do yeah. what now? Uh-huh. And as to as to mean what the hell are you talking about? What do you yeah. what, what do you mean? Uh, yeah. But I I wrote that scene and then I went on Facebook and I said, 
I heard middle-aged Southerners say this in the 70s. I'm not sure it was a thing in 1953, and I can't. I've been unable to research the etymology. Someone tell me they. Someone talk to their 70-year-old grandma from Tennessee <laughs> and get back to me that this is a thing that was said in the early 50s <laughs> by Southern mm-hmm. girls. And someone did literally say, "Wow, my great aunt is from Nashville. She's 72 years old, and she says, yeah, yeah. we said do what now all the time. I'm like, great. Yeah. Perfect. I'm from Nashville. That's what my grandparents said all the time. Yeah, what so <laughs> I didn't know that precisely. I know from my dad, I know how New Yorkers talked okay in the 50s and my mother is from brooklyn so i have a i have the five boroughs but if Mm -hmm. i have i don't specifically know how uh there's a great documentary that really helped me out called uh betty page reveals all Ooh, i need to watch that it's terrific the soundtrack is about 80 90 percent betty herself in a phone interview that they then who tells the whole story of her life which she then cuts up uh, to tell the story of her life in the documentary. And when I mm-hmm. first got the job, I rented that documentary and watched it because I wasn't sure what I was going to do with her. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, I can do that. That's a great voice. That's a fascinating person. And I mm-hmm. want to write about her. So mm-hmm. one of the things that that deeply influenced is the f- whole format of the Betty Page comic is that it is her mm-hmm. secret diary relating her adventures as an agent of the United States government and how she got, <laughs> like she ends up working for the X-Files essentially in the <laughs> early 1950s, which was a way, it's sort of like Elvira. It allows me to do all of the like horror and adventure and spy movie tropes of the early 50s, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. plugging this young Tennessee girl into all of it. Um, and literally like, the first arc is, uh, I changed the names because I don't want to get sued out of, into oblivion, but I had done <laughs> good, this, good idea. I, I had done research for a story and this is why it became the first story arc. Uh, do you know who, uh, Jack Parsons is? Oh there's yeah. A, yes. There's a show about medium, him on right? right now. No, Jack, no, there, is, there is a comedian from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Oh, yes. oh man. He was a also crazy a story of, of Jack Parsons. You got to look into was, that. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a web series. It wasn't on when I was writing, but there's a there's a series called uh, Strange Angel based on a book mm-hmm. about him because oh, wow. he was a member of the Thelema. Yeah. Uh, Free love. He cult. was with like uh, he read the teachings of uh, Alistair. Alistair Crowley. Crowley. Yeah. Yeah. That's Ooh. right. But here's the 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 the, the punchline to the, his story. He did die by accidentally blowing himself yes. up, uh, experimenting with rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. And it's Maybe. one of those things like people try to make a, because he was a member of a cult and all that, people try to make a conspiracy theory out of it. It's like, no, this was like the 10th time he blew himself up with <laughs> rocket fuel. It's just the time that killed him. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> when a guy spends his entire life experimenting with rocket fuels and yeah. dying by blowing, it's like my favorite yeah. really black comedy joke about Steve Irwin. When he got, oh, yes. when he got oh, yeah. killed, I think it, Norm MacDonald was on Conan or Letterman or something like that. And someone said something about, you know, so tragic. He died so young. And Norm MacDonald in his way was like, I don't know. I think, I, I think 40 years old is a ripe old age for a crocodile <laughs> hunter. Right. right. <laughs> like he wasn't an accountant. Yes. If an accountant in 
Sydney died because some exotic animal killed him. Oh, that's crazy. How did that happen? The yeah. crocodile hunter being <laughs> killed by an exotic animal. Yeah. Kind of a thing uh, that was going to happen someday. So John yeah. Parsons blowing himself to bits with rocket fuel was one of those. Well, sure. Anyway, mm-hmm. he had a buddy uh, who lived with him in his little commune in in uh, Pasadena mm-hmm. and who studied the Thelema cult and learned how it worked and why it worked and all that and was fascinated with cults and science fiction and whatever. Mm-hmm. That buddy ran off with his wife oh. or his girlfriend. I can't remember if they <laughs> it was were. his girlfriend at the time. Yeah, they were technically not married. Yeah. Ran off with his girlfriend and founded Scientology. Yeah. <laughs> it's <gasps> no so way. crazy. It's the yeah. greatest punchline ever. <laughs> and uh, so I made him the villain of my... So when I was like, what's a awesome. cool story that I can drop Betty Page into. It's like, what if she's Johnny Parsons' assistant at JPL? Yeah. And That's gets cool. involved with cults and That's spies awesome. and rocket fuel and UFOs and all this kind of stuff. And it's a super fun story. I tied it into the whole Roswell thing a little bit. And then uh, in the second arc, there's a, there's a standalone issue. One of my favorite movies ever is Them. Mm-hmm. movie from the 1950s giant ants yeah. horror movie Ooh, okay radioactive mutant giant ants <laughs> i did one with giant scorpions uh, oh, good. <laughs> and the movie is called them the issue is called those <laughs> That's awesome. and there's a, there's a, in comic books a big part of storytelling is a page turn mm-hmm. like you 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 have to it's one of the first things i learned and it's crucial to comic book storytelling is that when you turn the page, you go, oh, and it and the bottom, the bottom right hand corner, when you have a comic book open, should make you want to turn the page and see what right. comes next. Mm-hmm. So right. in that issue, bottom right hand corner of one page is her looking up at something and she's saying, what are? And then you turn the page and it's a giant <laughs> radioactive scorpion eating a Jeep. And she's saying, those. Uh, <laughs> And them, like, even has an exclamation point in its title. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a thing set at the Cannes Film Festival, which allowed me to use all of my 1950s film references. Awesome. There's a scene where she meets a benevolent alien who, in order to not alarm her, appears to her as Gene Kelly from uh, An American in Paris. Okay. <laughs> because who could be scared by sexy Gene Kelly? Like, it's, you know, it's very, so it, cool. it, it sets her at Jeez. ease. That she's yeah. uh, with Gene Kelly. And uh, I just kept the, there's a, this one is, those two books are out. The third book in the series, a new artist comes in named Julius Oda, who's amazing. And this was before the, I, I conceived of this story before The Crown came out. And then The Crown came out and made my life Ooh. really easy. And it's Princess Elizabeth gets kidnapped by a UFO amazing <laughs> Bet- between her becoming ki- queen and her actual coronation oh my uh, gosh and that's the most inside i have ever one of my favorite tv shows in the 60s and i you know i didn't watch it when i was four years old i saw reruns later but there's this great show find it on streaming and watch it it's called ufo mm-hmm. it's about a secret organization that's fighting a alien invasion without letting people know about it and their, oh. their cover operation, which I think is the most genius idea, is a movie studio. Because if people see crazy shit going on in a movie studio, ah, they're making a science fiction movie. 
yeah. the name of the studio is Harlington Straker. And in the uh, in the Betty Page Queen Elizabeth story, the secret that drives the entire plot is a British minister trying to get the funding to make that organization. <laughs> it's about a British minister in the 50s who's obsessed with building an anti-UFO organization, and he fakes the kidnapping of Queen Elizabeth by a UFO so that uh-huh. Winston Churchill will give him the money to fund the organization from the British TV show from the 60s. <laughs> and almost no one picked that up, and I'm fine with that. It's just like, <laughs> it was just one of those things. I was like, why would anyone, like it's, writing 101 mm-hmm. is stories ask questions. Okay. You always try to avoid the answer that anyone could come up with. So why would a UFO kidnapped Queen Elizabeth? Well, they're aliens, they're invading the earth. Yeah, that's how, and that's what anyone would do. Making it about the financing of an anti-UFO organization is the weird ass, you hope, left turn. A friend of mine is a great comic book creator named Bo Smith, and he created a character named Winona Earp that's now a great TV series. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading an interview with him where someone asked him, it's about the descendant of Wyatt Earp, who's this sort of fucked up young woman who's not, doesn't really want to be heir to the, you know, and it turns out the Earps have been fighting demons all these years. Uh, and the, the, you know, the chosen heir to Wyatt Earp gets the special gun that kills demons and all that. But anyway, someone asked him, like, are you a big feminist? Is that why you made it Winona Earp instead of a man? And he said, mm-hmm. you know, that never, that isn't really the thinking that came into it. The thinking that came into it is, what would everyone else do? Well, what everyone else mm-hmm. would do mm-hmm. was have the descendant of Wyatt Earp be a square-jawed, handsome young man, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to a punk rock, you know, chick. Right. Right. So make the choice that everyone wouldn't make, you know? Mm-hmm. The question, it's when you're a writer and you spend all of your time and energy trying to make things interesting, it's very hard to get, and I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging or patting my own back. I got the surprise ending to The Sixth Sense roughly five minutes into the movie. Really? Partially okay. because people had told me there was a surprise twist. Uh-huh. If you know that, and if you know from the trailer that the kid sees dead people. Mm-hmm. There's only one conceivable surprise twist. Like, there isn't a bunch of other surprise twists. The surprise twist, mm-hmm. literally the only one, is mm-hmm. that is that he's dead. Right. That's it. You, there's no right. other cool option. So, right. and also, you know, as someone who made films and still hopefully makes films, you costuming. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis, when we see him with the kid, is wearing the suit he was wearing when he was killed. Ah, uh, oh, right, okay. right. Mm-hmm. You know, like a ghost might be, yeah, like it's not, it's a well-done movie. It's a right. it's a great horror movie. Mm-hmm. But no, if no one had told me there was a surprise, I might not have ever been thinking about it. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're prepping mm-hmm. I might not have it. been... But I literally, from the first scene where he was introduced, I was like, okay, I now I'm going to, instead of enjoying this movie, I'm going to be watching it to see if anybody makes eye contact with him. Anyone but the kid speaks directly Ooh, to him. Got you. So I yeah. spent that entire right. movie going, 
No, his ex, his wife is sitting at dinner, staring off into space. Doesn't say anything to him. Leaves the restaurant without saying anything to him. Mm. The doctor walks into the room, talks to the mom and the kid. Doesn't acknowledge that Bruce Willis is sitting right there. Like I literally, that's all I was doing for the movie. And as much as I appreciated the scares of it, if no one had told me it had a surprise ending, I might not have been thinking that way. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then, yeah. you, and then, okay, you know that M. Night Shyamalan makes movies with surprise endings. This is a true right. story. Mm-hmm. I was watching the trailer for Unbreakable, his second mm-hmm. movie, which was just the scene where Bruce Willis is told there was a train crash and he's the sole survivor and there's not a single scratch on him. My brother-in-law was sitting next to me during the trailer. And without, I turned to him as the trailer was ending. I was like, that would be the greatest trailer ever for a Superman movie. And my brother-in-law literally said to me, fuck you. And I said, what? And he said, you just spoiled that movie for me. He said, said, obviously you're right. Obviously he's a superhero. That's the only good explanation. I wasn't thinking about that. And I wasn't crazy about that movie. I wasn't crazy about uh, Signs was like, Aliens who can be destroyed by water. Right, and in, yeah. the, <laughs> and in the first scene, they're running through a cornfield in Pennsylvania at night. I've been in cornfields in Pennsylvania at night. They are wet <laughs> as hell. <laughs> so don't even make me think about that. And then literally, uh, when The Village came out. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love The yeah, Village. <laughs> I had seen, but I had seen The Village. or I had, I had seen the trailer. And my writing partner at the time had seen the movie. And we were walking mm-hmm. around somewhere talking about a project we we're working on. And I said, should I see the village? And he was like, eh. And I said, tell you what, if I can guess the surprise ending, I don't have to see the movie, right? And he said, go for it. I said, it's not the 18th century. It's the 20th century. He said, okay, you're done. So, you don't have to see, so being a writer ruins movie twist endings, basically. Well, and, all, <laughs> well, and also, it, yeah. you know, it's not, just being a, it's not just being a writer. It's also small things knowing that someone is good at their job which he is Mm -hmm. and knowing that details matter Mm -hmm. the robes they're wearing in the village are dyed a color that no one had that dye in the 18th century okay Okay. yeah you know what i mean like it's a small detail but he's telling and it's i appreciate the for want of a better word it's honest he's not faking it but the clothes they're wearing i'm like those are like community theater costumes of what <laughs> like it's like a community theater production of the crucible but that weird yellow that all their clothes is designed that weird yellow they all wear in the uh-huh. village is not mm-hmm. a color anyone wore in the 18th century it's not a dye that existed it's not a there's a reason you've never seen it in a painting there's a reason you've never seen it in another period movie so that right. thing alone and it's funny because i actually kept going and he stopped me i said Outside the village, it's really the present day. They're not on Earth or on a pr- another planet. He went, no, 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 don't make it more interesting <laughs> when it is than it is. I said, oh, I went all like don't Philip K. Dick. Don't make it more interesting. That's great. You know, I went to I went to the <laughs> Philip K. Dick twist ending place yeah. where mm-hmm. the 18th century village is actually on another planet and it's a simulation <laughs> and whatever. But anyway, it's uh, and again, I'm not one of those people. I always say good movies, particularly, create mm-hmm. a trance. Okay. And if you're in that trance, none of this bothers you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, totally. no mm-hmm. anachronism, no 
you stop thinking about the plot and how it how it works you know mm-hmm. and i will yeah. say one of the things that uh, as someone who came to comic books late one of the great thrills was that i grew up looking at movies and television that way i grew up caring about direction and editing and acting and all that and it never ruined my enjoyment of movies but i was a student of technique mm-hmm. i've been reading comic books since i was a little kid paid no attention to technique whatsoever to the degree that when I got my first job, I'm like, okay, I'm now going to study this like I'm in college. I'm going to read yeah. up on it. I'm going to read books on comic book making. Scott McCloud has a three-book series. I think it starts yeah. with understanding comics. I recommend that to everyone, even if you have no mm-hmm. intention of ever making a comic. Fascinating stuff about storytelling and how art works and all that. Mm-hmm. But I seriously, like, I went to my bookshelf and I said, let's look at Watchmen. And I pulled down Watchmen. Yes. Nine panel grids occasionally broken by a thing where it's really important. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Pulled down New Frontier. Three panel cinemascope storyboard looking panels per page. Makes it absolutely like you're watching a movie. And then when there's a huge moment, he takes over a whole page. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Like I hadn't, if you had asked me before I studied it, what is the artistic, what is the, what is the format of Watchmen? What is the format of Dark Knight Returns? What is the format? Mm-hmm. I would have been able to tell you. I might have had like a vague memory of there being grid involved in Watchmen. And it is incredibly exhilarating. I was 49 years old when I started writing comic books. And wow. taking on a new discipline at 49 is the most yeah. invigorating thing. Being a student of something again in a way that like it's not that film will never stop having things to teach me it will never stop having things to tell me but i've now made a bunch of them i have learned a lot of the lessons i can teach you know what i mean wow yeah Mm -hmm. comic books i had if you had asked me about my favorite comics i would have had nothing to say about them aside from that was really great you know like i i had (laughs) no analytical take on them Mm -hmm. and now i look at them and i'm like oh my god you know, the, the, and I'll tell you something, dynamite screwed one thing up. The, when you go and look at your Elvira mistress of the dark, Mm -hmm. the, the page turns are wrong. Oh, the even numbered pages are odd. And the odd number pages are even all of my surprises are blown by that be oh because oh, you just okay. look to the right and there yeah. it is right oh i see it was if you oh. look at if you if you got elvira number one yeah. what's page one in elvira number one where you can only see the inside cover uh-huh is page two okay it is it the page one is the it would is where the inside so like that first page you don't actually see dracula on the first page mm-hmm. okay you turn the page and there he is big okay. as life you Look at it again that way and see how, okay. how how every second page is where the surprise should be. Huh. And interesting. Oh my god. It's fine. You were able to enjoy it clearly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. <laughs> absolutely the opposite huh. of what was intended. Because wow. you're not supposed to be able to see Dracula out of the corner of your eye on that first page. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a surprise. You know that, you know, she's talking about Dracula. She's walking down a dark hallway. But the reveal of her and the reveal of Dracula, that was supposed to be a fun 
hey, there it is. I turned the page yeah. and there it is. It's beautiful. It's big as life. So that what happened? Was it it's just, just a miscommunication? It's it it's just sometimes publishers pay attention to that stuff and sometimes they don't. And I think that mm -hmm. one got uh, that one got rushed out. I think it had sold so well for mm -hmm. Dynamite, honestly, that they wanted to rush it out and mm -hmm. get more readers mm -hmm. on it. And uh, also, when that came out, the series was still ongoing, so I think the two mm -hmm. things feed each other. But it's just it's a basic amateur mistake, and now I've and it's the it's the kind of mistake that when you're looking at it in a PDF, it is so hard to go like. Okay, so that's the cover, and that's the inside front cover, and that's the contents page. Like, it's hard to know if you're looking at the if you're counting right mm -hmm. when okay. it's not like a thing you have in your hands. Because uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, you don't know, like the inside cover might be blank, so that might be that might not be included in the PDF. Like, uh -huh. mm -hmm. so now I just like every single time I get one of those PDFs, I'm like. Make yeah sure. page oh one gosh. is page one right because a lot of times they do cover mm -hmm. and if they do it this way if they do cover page one the page count screwed up okay. if they do cover some kind of cool art page one fine mm -hmm. a lot of times if something has variant covers what i how i try to do this i go how about you do cover variant cover page one that's how i the drawing okay. The Drawing Blood uh, graphic novel that you can get from uh, his website, Kevin's website. That's how we did. We had we only had one variant cover. It's Ben's cover and then Kevin's cover. So in order to keep the page right, the page turns right, we did Ben cover, Kevin cover, page one, page two. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But it's a again, and again, that's like a yeah. basic storytelling of comic book thing that there are people working in the industry who are not familiar with it. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. I, I, wow. I, I do want to say, I, I realize I didn't give you a complete answer on something. And I want to circle back on it. Sure, please. Uh, Cassandra reads mm -hmm. every issue and, and no. gives me and gives me feedback Okay. and gives me and the most flattering thing in the world. The first issue, she had no notes. She literally said, this is great. Oh, since then, I tend to get between one and three not more than three mm -hmm. joke alternates oh from 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 her. cassandra oh okay like at the, she's a, at the bottom of the page two elvira says blank she could also say blank okay. uh and she always is like hey don't have to use it and i'm like i'm gonna use it yeah yeah uh, <laughs> yeah but she's also aware of uh in issue eight which you haven't gotten to yet there's a very dramatic moment where there's a cheap joke you could go for, and I chose, I was, I was, I could see it, low hanging fruit, right there. But it's yeah. a really emotion. It's it's actually a genuine emotional storytelling moment. Uh huh. And I felt like the cheap joke took away from it, so I didn't use it. Okay. And Cassandra sent me the email like, so bottom of page eighteen, <laughs> she could say blank. <laughs> But if you're going for, like, a genuine emotional moment here, don't listen to me. Just leave it as is. It's beautiful. Wow, the so fact like, that she saw that she, is amazing. And only once. There's a, there's, a, there's a panel in the Bram Stoker issue where Elvira is sort of retreating from Vlad. And I just, mm -hmm. I didn't have anything good. And I worked on it for, like, a half hour. And then I went, you know what? I bet. 
if I leave this panel alone or just put some lame line in it, Cassandra will catch it. Uh, yeah. And I got her notes. She had one joke alternate early in the issue. And then she mm-hmm. commented on that panel. You could have her say, so as my friend RuPaul would say, I'll just sashay away. Yeah. <laughs> and I was right. I That's but literally I just had, I'll just leave then or something. And it was lame and I knew it was lame, but I was like, yeah, Cassandra will fix this. I don't yeah. even have uh. to tell her, do you have anything better for this? She mm-hmm. will see it and she will catch it and it will be great. That's awesome. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> but I, I thought you as fans, particularly of Elvira, I didn't want to let that go. And we're, oh. well, I'm actually, um, it started out without us having met or I've met her now at a couple of conventions and taken my picture with her a couple of times. And mm-hmm. we've now collaborated on some story stuff and had some hour, two hour long phone calls. And she is wow. delightful and funny and everything. And we're wow. actually, we're working on a non comic book project together now. Oh, very so cool. are you really, I can't say anything more about it than that. But oh my gosh, cool. that's exciting! Off <laughs> off podcast, I can tell you what it is. Okay, okay. It's not it's not something I can talk about publicly. Right. It may absolutely go nowhere, but okay. um, still, you know. And I have to say, to be completely honest, when I took the job, I thought mm. it would be awfully nice if I can write this well enough that Cassandra wants me to write other. Elvira related oh, things. Oh, fantastic. Because oh. I love the character and I would like to continue writing. Yeah, Elvira. definitely. So, oh, that's yeah. amazing. Thank you for sharing all of those stories. Seriously, I'm just like, I feel like I've learned so yeah. much. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm, I, like I said, I'm a frustrated college professor. I can't help it. <laughs> As he drinks out of his Elizabeth Warren and <laughs> politics. Other political members. Yes, my, uh, my Kamala here. Harris cup. Your Kamala Harris cup. Yeah. Uh, well, oh my gosh, um, you got anything else? Oh my <laughs> what else? I think I've taken a, this is now like a double-sized episode for you, so I think I've taken up enough of your time. But yeah, I look love for, it. I encourage anybody who likes my stuff. Uh, the thing I am proudest of is drawing blood, the thing I do with Kevin, because it's the most personal and the most adult and the most heartfelt stuff i mean everything i do mm-hmm. you know if you're doing your job right it all comes from the heart i love mm-hmm. betty i if you like elvira you know i would say that they're you know they're very different El- elvira is a very urban sophisticated 20th mm-hmm. century lady you know mm-hmm. modern and uh betty page is a you know down home tennessee girl but they have important things in common and it's why I wanted to write them as characters they have the best kind of shamelessness mm-hmm. Betty Pate a lot of people do sexy sexy things when they're younger and then they become born again Christians she ended up working for uh, mm-hmm. Graham yeah. for, uh, I'm spacing on his first name Billy. Billy not Lindsay she ended up working for Billy Graham as an evangelical Christian but she never said it was wrong of me to have naked pictures taken. She always said, the Lord gave me a beautiful body and you can't find anything in the Bible that says anything about, about bondage. Yeah. There's nothing in there about bondage photos. Sorry. They're, they're just, you, can't, you can't make it bad. There's no, you, can't, uh, yeah. you can't convince me it's bad. 
<laughs> and obviously Elvira is shameless in the best way. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and they are both women who were in control of their own destiny. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a, yes. There's mm-hmm. a, you know, feminism has gone through what is called various waves. Mm-hmm. And I'm a third wave feminist, which is my mother was a first wave feminist. Luckily, we skipped the second wave. The second wave was the, you know, Andrea Dworkin, uh, porn is evil, uh, all sex oh, is I rape, see. you know, that kind Got of o- the overreaction to patriarchy, what I would mm-hmm. call an overreaction to patriarchy. Mm-hmm. The third wave is, you know what, if I decide to take naked pictures of myself and I'm not giving half the money to you, Hefner, uh, I can totally do that. <laughs> and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. And, you know, uh, I would say... Uh, Cassandra is a first wave feminist who made the transition to third wave like me mm-hmm. and uh, and Betty was a pre-feminist uh, you know pre the the ERA movement and Gloria Steinem and all that but she was mm-hmm. very savvy about taking care of herself and taking care of her own career and you know when McCarthyism when the the big right wing swing in the fifties when, you know, they had hearings about comic books being evil. She saw what was coming down the road and she stopped being a nude model. She's like, this is going to get, I am going to be on a witness stand in front of Congress if I keep doing this because the cult, wow. the culture can no longer stand it. And, wow. uh, I wrote a thing when I was growing up, playboy, magazine aside from, you know everybody makes the joke about i'm reading for the articles but james bond novels were serialized in playboy that's like where they first premiered before they were in paperback or in hardcover all the great writers of the late 20th century men and women wrote for playboy it's a very it was a very prestigious magazine um and when we started doing betty page dynamite had a really great pr person at the time we said, I'm going to reach out to Playboy. Betty Page was a, she was the centerfold for Christmas 1955, like the first year of the magazine. Uh, so we should, they, they should want to do an article about our comic book. One of the most, mm-hmm. the most flattered I may have ever been in my career. They sent the first issue to Playboy and Playboy got back to them and said, we do not want to do a PR puff piece about your comic book. However, if Mr. Avalone would agree to write a Betty Page comic book, six-page story that would appear in Playboy magazine, we would love that. (laughs) So the Christmas issue, I think it was 2017, of Playboy, Uh which was, by the way, the honorary, honoring Hef's death. So it was a Uh huge magazine in the history of the magazine. Ran a six-page story about a six-page Betty Page story drawn by oh uh, Joseph Michael Lindsner, who's a beautiful artist. And uh, because it was going to run in Playboy, I decided to make it about the state of men's magazines in 1953. So she has to go undercover at a Christmas party. I knew it was going to be the Christmas issue for a publisher of a men's magazine. And I'm trying to remember what I called the men's magazine. It was something goofy. Before Playboy, there were magazines that were called sweat magazines. That's Mm -hmm. mostly what Betty's pictures ran in. Mm -hmm. Male, Men's Adventure, Stag, 
and they they were in black and white. They had really shitty articles in them. The photography was bad. They were mm-hmm. badly written. They were cheaply made. But they had topless girls in them. And stories about, you know, war stories and detective. A lot of my father's stories first premiered in Men's Sweat Mags in Stag Magazine and because it was the precursor to Playboy. Mm-hmm. Right. At the end of the story, uh, after the, the plot has resolved, Betty is alone with the Sweat Mag publisher who the artist drew to look like Hefner, waiting for the FBI to arrive to clean up the mess that has been made. And she mm-hmm. says, while I've got your ear, your magazine is terrible. It should have better photography, color pro- photography, and real literature, and maybe, I don't know, <laughs> reviews of you know, electronics equipment and fashion for men that men, like everything that Playboy magazine was going to be in the 60s. So I basically mm-hmm. had Betty invent Playboy magazine. <laughs> and te- and Hefner is there like with his pipe in his hand and his smoking jacket, like rolling his eyes at her. But of course, and God bless him. Yeah. Playboy ran that in the issue that memorialized wow. Hefner. They ran a story <laughs> where Betty Page invents Playboy magazine. And, uh, I love and that. I think I that, that piece is in. That piece is included as an extra in the first Betty Page trade paperback. Uh, and That's I'd, awesome. The Amazing. first eight issues, the art is very uneven. Our first artist uh, had to drop out, and the the first eight issues never really recovered from it. So we keep seesawing back and forth between different artists. Starting mm-hmm. with the princess and the pinup, the artist is named Julius <laughs> Oda, and he is amazing. And he goes through the first story. And then the story after that is called Betty Page Unbound, and that is a absolutely crazy story that I'm uh, that, that I'm, I was very happy to be able to do. And uh, yeah, so Betty, t- proud of Twilight Zone: The Shadow, the Doc Savage thing is a mm-hmm, very awesome. classic 1930s adventure. A lot of people when they do Doc Savage because he's such an anachronistic, he's such a character of his time and place. People try mm-hmm. to update him and do. And when they asked me what I wanted to do, I was like, I just want to write the kind of story they would have done in the 1930s. But here's here's where I made it modern in a way. Mm-hmm. Doc Savage is sort of the prototype for Superman. He's not from another planet, but he's this like highly trained, he's like a perfect physical specimen. He's a genius. He's a surgeon. He's a brilliant concert violinist. He's like the world's most amazing man. He has a cousin named Patricia, who is him as a 25-year-old girl, basically. Among other things, she's something that was very unusual for women to be in the 1930s. She's a flyer. She's an aviator. Uh, When they asked me what story I would do for Doc Savage in the 30s, I have this great history book called uh, The Timetables of History, which literally just like lists, it doesn't go into detail, it just lists a year and tells you everything that happened. So mm-hmm. I went through the 1930s and went, what would Doc Savage, what would have gotten Doc Savage attention? So some, yeah. there was some stuff about volcanic activity that interested me. I worked that in. But also the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a story in which Pat Savage goes to her cousin and says, my girlfriend, Amelia Earhart, has been missing and no one's been able to find her. You're Doc Savage. You're better than huh. everybody. Find my girlfriend, Amelia Earhart. Amazing. 
There is no specific history of Amelia Earhart being gay. But she was very, for her time, she was Mm -hmm. very sexually liberated. Mm -hmm. I read a biography of her and there's this, she wrote a letter to her husband the night before they were married saying, because he he asked her again and again and again. She kept saying no. She finally said yes. He did? Oh my God. And she wrote him this letter that's extraordinary Uh where she says, we love each other. We have a great time together. We can be great partners. We are already great business partners. I will not hold you to any medieval ideas of fidelity, and I will not, I will not submit to being held to them either. Oh, and she took whoa. and she wow. took a lot of lovers during her time. Uh, a couple of them serious, uh, and that was not <laughs> that was not usual in the 1930s. She also spent a fair amount of her time speaking at women's colleges and trying to inspire young women. I am not trying to imply anything untoward, but she also started the first organization of women flyers. There were so few women flyers that the organization was called the 99s because there were 99 of them. It still exists. Mm -hmm. There are way more than 99 of them. I know a few members of the 99s who are female flyers. It just occurred to me that Pat Savage, who's this young, gorgeous, charming, adventurous flyer, would have Mm -hmm. met, she'd have to have met Amelia Earhart. And Mm -hmm. they could have fallen in love. And why wouldn't they have fallen in love? And why not tell? So I managed to do a story that was a classic 1930s pulp adventure that hinged on a lesbian relationship. Amazing. And what's amazing about culture is that the Doc Savage fans, I feel like they didn't pick it up. Because that's a very male, very old fandom. Sure. And I didn't read any, I can't believe they made Pat and Dyke. Like, I didn't see any Mm -hmm. of that. But I also didn't see any of those people acknowledge that that was what the story was about. Whereas I read Mm -hmm. reviews written by people under 30 that just very casual is like so uh pat savage's lover amelia Earhart, and i read reviews by people who i'm sure have no idea that amelia Earhart was a real person who really vanished in the pacific in oh the wow 30s. by the way like <laughs> wow. like people who like they thought amelia Earhart was a comic book character i made up oh, no. and again fine whatever but um Amazing. those the 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 break was because also the story is set in the 1930s so it's not like they're particularly out of the closet. You know what I mean? Mm, right, right. But there is right, a right. scene where, you know, the scene where Pat comes to Doc Savage and says, help me. He says, I know you loved her. And, but I don't think you're going to like the end of the story of, you know, he thinks she crashed and died. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to all this work and it's going to be a skeleton at the end of Bottom of the Pacific. And do you really want to see your dear beloved friend Amelia as a skeleton in a cockpit at the bottom Mm -hmm. of the ocean. Um, But I think a certain reader was able to read that line. It's like, oh, it's her best friend. She loved her, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite things the artist did, there's a, uh, Doc has these five guys he hangs around with. These five Mm -hmm. other scientists who are like his crew, his buddies. There's a scene where Amelia and Pat are saying goodbye uh, because Pat... Uh, Amelia has to make a sacrifice in order to save the world. 
-hmm. and they're saying goodbye and hugging. And I described it in the script that Dave drew it so beautifully. There's a panel of three of his guys listening to this heartbreaking conversation between these two women who love each other. And they're all kind of like, they're not, (laughs) they can't look. It's too, (laughs) it's too, it's too emotional and it's too sexual. Like they're like, Oh, the two hot, the two hot ladies are hugging. Where do we, where do we, we can't look directly at that. That's too much. Let's all look somewhere. Oh, look, I'm looking at my boots, you know? And I just, (laughs) it's such a beautiful moment about the culture of the time and Mm -hmm. the the discomfort of men at the time with displays of emotion and particularly displays of that emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. What is that comic name again? That's called Doc Savage Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire. And it's also, because I can't help myself, it's just also about, 1930s pulps are about how the world, there's a subtext to them. Even in the first Superman comics, they're about the depression. They're about the rise of fascism. It's the background of everything. And even if you don't know that consciously, you feel this apocalyptic dread hanging over everything and it's wild and i really wanted to capture that feeling of the you know doc savage doesn't come out of the roaring 20s doc savage Mm -hmm. doesn't come out of woo we're drinking and listening to jazz and everything's awesome doc savage comes out of oh we've learned that the stock market can crash we've learned that people can starve in the United States of America. Sure, we've mm-hmm. we've yeah. learned that Europe can fall under the grip of fascism and communism. Like mm-hmm. America is very alone in the world and very isolated, but like Doc Savage, America is Doc Savage is how America sees itself. Super mm-hmm. Superman in the 1930s is how America mm-hmm. sees itself. We can do anything. Yeah. We are super yeah. powerful. We have the we have these we have planes and death rays and super trains like we have all this amazing super science and we're stronger than everybody and we're smarter than everybody but the world is a scary apocalyptic mess and i Mm -hmm. wanted you to read this thing and feel world war ii just hanging heavily over you the Mm -hmm. whole time because it's that's the hardest thing about writing period is what was what did it feel like to be alive in the 1930s and i've tried Mm. to understand that through reading stuff from the period you know my parents both lived through that period but that's the what's what was in the what was in the air what was in the oxygen and it's the thing that most period films get hilariously ridiculously wrong is not understanding that Human beings have always been human beings, but the psychology of a culture changes over time and how people look at things. This entire era of the last four years have changed how I would write about, like, occupied France in the 40s. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. This entire COVID experience has changed how I would write about post-apocalyptic stuff. Yeah. Definitely. About what it's like, you know, if I wrote something about occupied France now, I would be like, on people can still be happy they can still have parties they can still have a good time but hanging right. over it all is this sense of everything's you're quicker to get angry mm-hmm. than you would have mm-hmm. been you have a shorter temper about everything and i say that 
I think that's true even of the people who think Trump is the greatest president that ever lived. They're still living. They're, they are angry about everything all the time, too. Yeah. And they don't. They would never acknowledge it's because of the dictator they love. But it's in mm-hmm. their brains. And they can't. The whole, like, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not a pussy. That's dictator brain. That's sure, that's yeah. apocalypse brain. Totally. That's you can't make me do a thing. They don't even know what that what they're resisting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not a rational sense of resistance, but everybody feels that anger at the world. And it's Nazi mm-hmm. Germany. Either you hate Hitler or you hate Jews, but there's no not hating. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right. That's the psychological right. makeup of mm-hmm. the world that you're living in and the air that you're breathing. And it's the same right. thing with Trump. If you love him, there's all these people that you hate. You hate immigrants. You hate brown people. You hate Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're still hating every day. You know? Yeah. And if you hate Trump, you got all that to hate. And the difference right. in the world is when it's not Trump anymore, we won't have to hate the government. But sadly, those people There'll will be still... something else. Those people will still be hating. Oh, yeah. You know, I was, you know, I've lived a long time. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't angry all the time when Obama was president. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people weren't. And I think even some Trumpers weren't angry all the time. Yeah. Even though they won't admit it. Yeah. You know, but anyway, (laughs) it's funny to say that this is about writing. But part of writing is like what's what's in the air that people breathe are breathing. And if you think about that and if you can capture that. I mentioned New Frontier earlier, and Darwin Cook captures. It takes. It goes between 1945 and 19. It's. Uh, it ends with uh, JFK's New Frontier speech, so 61, I guess, 60. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he he knows how people. He captures beautifully the change in psychology between those two periods, the hopeful post-war thing, still with the. PTSD memory of war Mm -hmm. the fear of communism in the 50s but still with the hope for the future and JFK saying no at the dawn of the 60s we can hope for a better world and he connects that with the formation of the Justice League of America that 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 that's the moon that's the superhero moonshot is guess what in this new world Superman and Batman and Green Lantern and Wonder Woman work together for a better world superman isn't just beating up landlords in metropolis and slapping around lex luther in his penthouse batman isn't just beating up people in back alleys you know wonder woman isn't just fighting the nazis overseas mm-hmm. we're they're, they're, we're all in this together and the <laughs> yeah. the genius of going you know what that transition in comic books also happened in the real world that hopeful new frontier uh and that's to me that's the best you can do with writing is like he's not writing a comic book about the transition from truman through eisenhower to kennedy he's writing about superman yet Mm -hmm. he is absolutely about writing writing about truman to eisenhower to kennedy and that's the that's the secret sauce the is what are you yeah. and a lot of times you d- you don't know you don't know mm-hmm. what am i writing about until you write it in elvira mm-hmm. 
it's hard to pin that down. What am I writing about? But what I'm writing mm -hmm. about essentially in all of those things is why did those people write those stories? Right. Mary Shelley right. worshipped these two dudes who were not worth her time at all. Right. And Elvira tries to convince her of that. Bram Stoker was afraid of his wife, was afraid of other men, was afraid of his fucking shadow. That's what he was writing <laughs> about. Poe was in a world of his own fears and paranoias and visions, and that's what he was writing about. And Elvira is sort of revealing to all of these people the subtext of what they're experiencing. And when you get, yeah. I can't wait for you to read the hell issues because that's a, yes. there's a lot, there, there, there's a lot going on in that. Uh, and look, you mm -hmm. shouldn't, when you write about hell, you can't help but be writing about human morality. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's literally inescapable. Um, yeah. And uh, I had a, there's a guest star in that. And I'm very, very proud of that guest star and very proud of how it all worked out. So, uh, you that's know. awesome. Wow. I, <laughs> Thank you for You're sharing everything. Thank you to for having me mind, on. Yeah. Just to like hear the mind of a writer is is pretty That's incredible. Really cool. And I, yeah, I you know I don't I I mean I've never had that opportunity to talk to someone so deeply about their work. So I I really awesome. appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thank thank you, thank you and thanks, thank you for your your very enthusiastic support. I will always be proud of the fact that I wrote the first comic book you read. You're the only person yes. I know. That that's true of, by the way. So oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I, you created this. I, my friend. I have yeah. I have not yet encountered someone who I wrote their first ever comic book. So you're the godfather cool. of this uh, podcast. That is, yeah, and, and, and that is absolutely that is absolutely wild to me. So thank you. Oh well, I just and again, great I'm great so to meet you, Chelsea. Oh, great meeting you as well. <laughs> Um, where can everybody find you online, David? The basic central uh, spot. Uh, GoDaddy are horrible, so don't ever use GoDaddy. The reason I say that is they <laughs> they uh, they literally. I I looked up davidavaloni.com once using their service, and they uh -huh. squatted on it because I didn't oh. buy it. So when I went back to buy it, they were like, "Oh, that'll be," and I was like, "No, no, no." <laughs> so uh, my business card since I moved to LA has always said David Avalone Freelance on it because I've always done okay. a lot of different jobs. So okay. davidavalonefreelance.com uh, has links to everything that I'm doing and everything that I do. Uh, the podcast that I do where I read uh, excerpts from Pulp Fiction and talk about it is called Pulp Today. And uh, that's I think that's the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile right now. Uh, and there are 24 episodes of that. I'll probably do more soon. And by the way, pulp, I use a pretty wide definition of it. Because what pulp really means is anything that was originally published on cheap paper. Okay. It's, pulp oh. literally refers to the paper. It doesn't refer to oh. anything else. It doesn't. What? It doesn't mean hats and guns. It doesn't mean... Okay. <laughs> Lovecraft was first published in the pulps. Bradbury was first published in the pulps. Whoa. Most of the writers you've heard of were still published in the books. And I cheat. Wow. I will cheat every once in a while and read someone who first published in hardcover. But it's popular fiction that was intended for the masses. Um, so I cover a lot of ground there. Uh, and I'll be, I've been off. I've literally stopped doing it because I appear on camera during it. And I like to look nice. And it has been too hot in my apartment for me to wear good clothes. 
Um, <laughs> but I'm just going to turn off my air conditioning. And uh, I think my I think the next episode that's coming out, I'm going to turn off my air conditioning, put on a tuxedo, and read Casino Royale. Uh, oh, cool yes, for the people. Nice. Talk about talk about James Bond for a few episodes. Nice. And I'm starting a podcast tomorrow called uh, The Writer's Block, which will be four writers sitting around talking about pretty much anything, but uh, mostly the state of the industry, particularly the comic book industry, but we tend to we tend to wander far afield in our topics like we do. And as uh, the, the, the thing we're trying to replicate is the experience of going to a comic. The best part of going to a comic book convention is after the convention is over, you all go to the bar and hang out and drink and talk and you get to talk to people you've admired your whole life or met recently, people you only know online, people you only know through their work and you get to encounter them as human beings. That's how I met Kevin Eastman at Emerald City Comic Con. He was with some friends of mine. He sat down next to me. And we started talking about World War II comics from the 1970s because that's what we both grew up on. And that experience of those wide-ranging professional discussions, it's going to be a lot more of what you heard today. Um, awesome. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be new every Wednesday. And that will be available in video. It will be available in audio only. I think we're going to be on iTunes and Spotify and all that kind of stuff. Because someone who is better at this than I am is taking care of all that for me. Um, oh, good. And yeah, and uh, Drawing Blood Volume 2 will go to the Kickstarter supporters first, but then shortly thereafter we'll probably have that out as a new trade paperback. And the second uh, Ragdoll's 40-page book, will that will go out sooner rather than later. That will okay, be solicited good. and will be in comic book stores. I will make sure that uh, Tiffany picks it up at Berkey Nerd. Uh, <laughs> it's very... As I said before, we're like commenting on the whole history of comic mm -hmm. books. So, in, mm -hmm. you know, we did the first origin issue set in 1991, supposedly from 1991. This is the mid-90s tie-in to the non-existent Nickelodeon cartoon. Version. Oh, okay, cool. So, like, nice. if you, like, when Batman the Animated Adventures was on, they did a comic book that was drawn in that cartoony mm -hmm. style, and there was definitely more for kids. Uh and the, art, right. the artist Troy Little actually came up with the story for this one because he works on, like, Rick and Morty cartoon. Com oh, yeah. nice. He, wor yeah. he, worked, he draws the Rick and Morty Dungeons & Dragons comic. Yes, my husband has so that. So he yeah. came to me with a story idea, and I'm not a children's author at all. So I strain to come up <laughs> with stories that are like a story you would tell a small child. Right. I have no problem telling right. adult stories to small children, by the way. But I would never do, <laughs> I, but like the kind of story you would do in like a Nickelodeon cartoon for kids, it's not come naturally to me. He came to me with a thing, mm -hmm. the villain in the ragdolls is Overdog. And he's like, Overdog steals all the fish in New York City so there can be no more sushi and there's no more food for cats. <laughs> I would not have come up with that premise <laughs> in a million years because it's such a kid show. Like yeah. I think too in a too concrete real world way to go like well but that you couldn't do that that doesn't make any sense but on a kid show that is terrific uh, so there's a forty page uh, story about overdog stealing all of the fish in New York City and it is delightful nice. and Tro Troy and I co wrote it and Troy drew it and it's beautiful so that's all awesome. the next stuff 
That's amazing. Yeah, everybody go check him. Go check out David Avaloni and all of his works. Um, this is coming out in October, so the podcast, his new podcast, will be up and running. Oh, yeah, that's uh, right. Is- Sorry, I, I forgot. This is being recorded <laughs> way before it's going to come out. So, yeah, by the time this is out, you should be able to find a good, let's see, that's eight, should be at least 12 episodes of The Writer's Block cool. and another <laughs> dozen episodes Perfect. of uh, Pulp Today. Nice. So forget all of what I just said. There are 12 episodes. Listen to all 12 episodes of The (laughs) Writer's Block on Spotify. Yes. And when you guys post about it, I will post about it. So there is the, yes, of course, of course. Um, Awesome. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Ongoing Comic Book Discussion Podcast. Tune in tomorrow for day 17 of 31 days of horror. Say bye, David and Chelsea. Bye, Bye, ciao. Thank you for tuning in to Ongoing Comic Book Discussion Podcast 31 Days of Horror. If you like what you're hearing, please follow OCD on any of your favorite podcatchers. Take it a step further and leave a five-star Apple Podcast review. (laughs) That really helps me out. Thank you. You can follow OCD on Instagram at OCD Podcast or Facebook.com slash OCD Podcast. Tune in tomorrow as I review another horror Halloween comic. <laughs>